Attention Rant Army. This is Eileen Dietz, a.k.a. Buzzuzu. And my friends at the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast are reviewing my movie, The Exorcist. So, pop some popcorn, grab a Ouija board, and conjure up the courage to download this podcast. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Evil comes in many forms, but in the case of William Friedkin's paranormal masterpiece, The Exorcist, that evil manifests in the form of a demon. Now, thankfully for us, the woman you heard at the top of this episode that's responsible for bringing nightmares to millions is nothing short of of an angel. Whether you call her the devil, Captain Howdy, or Pazuzu, we've got to thank the immensely talented and incredibly nice Eileen Dietz for participating in this hellish episode. Now, as a thank you, I need all of you out there in the Rant Army to assemble your forces and follow Eileen on social media at Queen of Screams. Now, once you've followed her, you got to do the same for us. The Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt from our web store at RantArmy.com. All right, guys, this month, to quote pretty much every 1980s heavy metal band ever, we're in league with Satan as we deep dive into what many consider the scariest film of all time, 1973's The Exorcist. But first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Woe to you, O Earth, for the devil sends the beast with wrath, for he knows his time is short. Let him who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. His number is 666. My lifetime obsession with heavy metal has prepared me for this moment, but not even the legions of Lucifer himself can stand against the ranks of the Ran Army. So it is with great pleasure I sit across from one of my best friends. You know him, you love him. Alcohol fuels his unquenchable lust for women and donuts. Fat Tony! Today is a very special episode because this movie deserves a serious consideration. This is not a Drunk Tony episode. This is a Drunk Fat Tony episode because listening back to all the previous episodes I've ever done, I've never done 100% sober and I'm not sober right now, but my brain is focused 
This is an important movie. And what movie are we talking about today, Brandon? We're going to be talking about 1973's The Exorcist, what many consider to be the scariest film ever made. Now, we'll certainly talk about whether or not that is the case, but you have a uh, distinction you'd like to... It could also be the greatest rom-com ever made. Who knows? It could just be the greatest ever made. I have never drawn parallels in that direction, but we'll certainly allow you to make your case as we continue on. So let's hit the ground running. The Exorcist was released deep I'm sorry December 26, 1973, on a budget of $11 million. Now, adjusted for inflation in 2020 uh, money, that comes out to $66 million. That's a big budget movie. Yeah, that's this is uh, the like one of the first times I can think of in my cinema history knowledge that a horror movie is given a real budget, especially the ones me and Brandon have talked about. You know, it's always been shoestring budget. Let's see what we can do. This movie, because of the success of the book, was given serious consideration by the serious, you know, film critics and stuff out there that this was a real movie, not just a horror movie. Yes. Uh, in, in fact, uh, it's one of those movies that's classified as a thriller. Uh, even though, let's just be honest, any movie that deals with the devil, it's a horror it's movie. It's a fucking horror movie, and horror it has in plenty. Now, its opening weekend gross uh, came in just shy of $9 million, but the actual on-the-dot gross, and, the, and this I'm not making this up, this is the most coincidental, if not uh, devilish comparison I could ever draw to the movie, $8,175,666. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! <laughs> Wait, you said $8 million? $8 million. The One total hundred. gross? That's, oh, that that's the opening, oh, oh, opening uh, the, gross. The opening so weekend. they rounded up to $9 million. Okay, I yeah. see what you're saying. Uh, the U.S. gross for its domestic run was $232 million. Is that Nine, $1973? $1973. Hold on. $232,906,145. Uh, now, it's worldwide gross... Four hundred and forty-one million three hundred and six thousand one hundred and forty-five dollars adjusted for inflation. That comes to two point five billion billion with a B. Fuck you, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> wow. Damn. Yeah. Uh, so that is ne- shocking. Needless to say, the public at large was enamored with this film, but the critics who are most of the time harsh on the films that you and I love, at least in this genre, they were a little more uh, agreeable with what this film brought to the table. It was a literary horror movie, you know, coming from a book and blah, blah, blah. Bullshit. You know, I love The Exorcist. Don't get me wrong, but don't think that I take The Exorcist any more seriously than I take fucking, like, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, I, I, I'm as like, as an artist as the as the <laughs> studio push behind it and the artistic merit behind the camera and in front of the camera. Yes, I know there's more effort involved, more time, more care, more consideration. But to me, like I love those slashers every bit as much as I love the artsy horror. Um, Exorcist, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs is a, is a glorified slasher film. 
just like The Exorcist, is a glorified and extremely well done satanic panic exploitation film. Uh, in fact, it was right on the forefront of those movies. I mean, preceded a little bit uh, by Rosemary's Baby, and we'll get into that as we continue on. Now, I was talking about the critics. They were very kind to this movie, but I was actually surprised at the uh, modern ratings of this movie are not as high as I expected them to be. Really? IMDb has it as an 8 out of 10. That's that's a fair... I give it 8.5, so that's not far that's, from that's where fair. I That's fair. That's fair. Metacritic, 81 out of 100. Again, 85%. Rotten Tomatoes, 84%. Hmm. The audience score, 87%. Google users, who I most... Come on, Google. Back me up. 87%. At least they're above the 85% mark. They got me. But... I got. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think Shutter, our you know our horror streaming brethren out there, Hell Ether, Shutter, Hell Shutter, um, <laughs> they have it a 4.9 out of five. I, to me, this is as close to perfect of a film, let alone horror film, just across the board, as you can get. So 4.9. I th- I don't think that's an overstatement. No, it's not. And I want to interject here real quick that there was a mathematical formula for horror done that somebody applied to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and said that that was the perfect horror movie, which I strongly disagree. I love The Shining, don't get me wrong. If I want to apply a mathematical formula to perfect horror, it would be to The Exorcist. And to me, again, I say 85%. Like, this is a 95% fucking... Like, it's hard to... The, the younger audiences out there won't get that the, the sheer impact this movie had. The sheer raw visceralness of this movie. This is, for the time, a perfect fucking horror movie. I, I completely agree, and I will take that one step. It's just a perfect movie. It really is. I, I, I agree. Now, in previous episodes of this podcast, we have done Fat Tony's Hit List, and a lot of times these movies we have spotlighted have been slashers, so they're very blood-soaked. This movie is completely different. This is all, uh, it's not existential horror, a lot of this is internal. The one scene where there's blood is really fucked up. That, <laughs> we'll get that, to that. That <laughs> it is, but it, that scene is not, <coughs> is not a horror. Is, uh, not a horror. Nobody it's, dies. It's, nobody dies. Um, so, and on Fat Tony's Hit List, uh, we have... Three people. And that would be four if you include Karis' mother, and that's an off-screen death and, and all of that. So this is not a blood-soaked movie, and I think a lot of modern audiences would see this as being boring. In fact, I work with people in my day job, which is a haunted house, and they state that The Exorcist is boring. No, I, I... They're wrong, and they're bad people, and, you know, if you get the power, you should get them fired. <laughs> I don't have that power, but if I if I could, I would I would try to utilize it uh, in a more positive light to uh, educate them. So hopefully the listeners. Brandon's nice to me. I want them to be unemployed, homeless, and starving on the street. This is a fucking great movie. Indeed, in every sense of the word. But there there is a contingency out there that says this movie is not scary, and I think that they're viewing it through a modern lens. I, I of, get that. Of, I do. And this movie is scary on levels that they're not perceiving because they're not watching it 
There, okay, As for, to me, there is active and there's passive viewing, and we'll, we're going to discuss that in length a little later on, but I think they're passively viewing it because they have their cell phone attached exactly. to their Exactly, that's what hand. I was going to say. I watch movies with my stepdaughters all the fucking time, and I try to expose them to good movies, and like, there's been times I'm like, give me your fucking phones. There's no phones during this movie, because if I don't do that, they'll be Snapchatting and checking Instagram and bullshitting around and not looking at the screen. They're listening to see when the excitement comes, when the killer's on screen, bullshit like that. And I will, like, there's some movies, I don't care. If I'm watching something on Netflix, fuck it. Let them have their fun. If I'm showing them a movie that means a lot to me, I'm not kidding. I will take their phones and they will sit by me. Well, I, I applaud your uh, striving to, to be a... Uh, not well, a it's because I can't hit kids. <laughs> I applaud you on being a good father, both in not uh, displaying your kids with your fist and in being um, a uh, ambassador for the merit of film just in general. Now, prior to us recording this, we were having a conversation about the possibility that a movie that both you and I are looking forward to being postponed or released digitally. And we're both on board for it being postponed because we want the theater experience. How important is the theater experience? The theater experience and the movie we're talking about is and i hate to take this from brandon it's ghostbusters afterlife before really talking to brandon and knowing him well i thought i was one of the bigger ghostbusters fans out there i'm not brandon beats me i will totally give that i'm looking at a wall behind him of nothing but ghostbuster shit uh the podcast always has you know you just got got busted. busted Uh, but we're talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife. I don't want to see that at home. I love my family and I could cozy up on a couch with them. No, I want a fucking theater and I want people in that fucking theater to share a communal experience. And that's what, honestly, this movie, hearing their numbers converted in today's dollars, like, represents. People view this movie as a communal experience. Let's all go get the fuck scared out of us. It's funny that you bring that out because, to me, this... If you are a cinephile, you know, a movie buff, your church is the theater. Exactly. That's where I worship. And we all we all strive with our collections to bring to bring religion to our homes, but it's not the same. No. The having the the experience of sitting next to a stranger or, you know, a group of your friends in silence, but still being able to enjoy the film and to react as they react and and bring in the the experience of seeing people experience it as you go along that's something that you can't get isolated in your own home as horror movies go the closest my generation has got because i got to see this in the theater was hereditary which for our generation i honestly viewed through my born in 1981 eyes is a more fucked up and, I'm using air quotes here, you can't see, <laughs> scary movie than The thank, Exorcist. Thank you, thank you for pointing out. I know, it's quotes. an auditory medium, so I had to. But um, it's, again, like I said, scarier movie than The Exorcist, but it wouldn't exist without The Exorcist. It wouldn't exist without that mass like theater experience of like, oh my God, this is hitting us in the face with a fucking brick of terror that The Exorcist brought to everyone. And I was so grateful for it. And real quickly, I hate to distract you. During Hereditary, in the scene after the girl loses her head, (laughs) one of the best fucking shocking scenes ever, because I thought it would be more about her. Great advertising campaign. There's the 
the tongue click in the car and my, the love of my life, Sarah, screaming out loud in the theater, what the fuck? And just hearing everybody get a release attention laughing at her. Like, you can't get that at home. No, absolutely. We can laugh at her, but you're not having like 50 other people fucking laugh at her, screaming full volume, what the fuck? I cannot imagine the impact of this movie back in the day. And real quickly, my mother recently passed, like very recently. And this was always her go-to gold standard. Like, if you watch this, you're going to hell. If you like this, you're going to hell movie. Because she watched most of this movie from the lap of her date because they went to a drive-in and she couldn't watch the screen. You don't get that anymore without a theater experience. You can't get that at home on a big screen TV. No, I, I completely agree with you. And uh, just just a moment, we'll... we'll I didn't want to stumble Brandon up with this. No, no, and, and I, I think it's uh, it's uh, a, a paradigm shifting moment to just talk about our personal lives. Um, uh, you you unfortunately have lost both your father and your mother. Wednesday and I, night. I was I was blessed to have known both of them. Both you know treated me like gold, especially your dad. Oh. But your your interactions I've had with your mom were, were comical, we'll so I have a that. soft spot uh, for her. But I just want to say, my mother, Melissa Mefford, was the, one of the kindest people I ever knew who never wished anybody any harm. And it was very unexpected. I found it at work Wednesday night. Um, and we're recording this on a Saturday. Saturday. So it's very fresh to me. But I insisted to Brandon. Brandon's like, you know, he probably, if I would ask to do this next weekend, he would have in a heartbeat said yes. But I'm like, no, I need to do this. This helps me. Um, I love my mother. It's very unexpected. We'll work through that. But right now, what I want the Rand Army to get, real quick, side tangent from The Exorcist, is Brandon's biggest story of interaction with my mother. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we're having a party uh, at uh, Anthony's house, Fat Tony's. I say party. He says party. It's just a couple small, of us. We're drinking, watching movies. I, to me, you know, friends gather drinking That's at a party. a party. It's a party to me. I, I just don't want the, the fucking Gen Z kids to think like 20 people. It's three of us. We're drinking. We're watching great movies. Or bad, great movies. Yeah, you know. I, I don't remember the details of the night, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty fucking three sheets of the wind, and uh, and as are you. Oh yeah, I'm four sheets of the wind because I kind of crash, wake up for a moment, <laughs> give a thumbs up, and go back to sleep. <laughs> we're, we're, in your, we're in your living room, and it's me, you, and uh, this unnamed girl, person, and this unnamed person, Andrea. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> anyways, um, uh. And uh, Fat Tony decides, like, fuck, I'm going to sleep. So he's, like, laying on the couch, and he turns his back. So I'm with this girl, and I'm like, hey, you want some of this? And she was all about it. So I'm going to town on her, like, hardcore. And then Anthony's mother, Fat Tony's mother, I'm sure I apologize. Cause I'm Anthony's looking, fine. Anthony's and fine. But, yeah, yeah, but you're you're Fat Tony in the podcast. Uh, Fat Tony, Drunk Tony. Um Anyways, we make such a ruckus, and thank you, thank you for ignoring our, our uh, passionate screams of love making because no, you're a good friend. I turned over, saw Brandon was getting laid, and turned right back the fuck over because I'm a fucking bro, yo. <laughs> Anyways, here comes Melissa down the stairs, like, do you guys need something? I'm like, yeah, I need you to go back upstairs because I'm getting laid. <laughs> 
Oh man! So your mom, your mom unintentionally cock blocked me. Um, Did y'all take the party elsewhere though? Um, no, we we uh, well, I mean, like we can we continued on, but it, but it quieter, was, but it was a quieter uh, endeavor. Oh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, there. Uh, I, I will I will say that uh, there there's a lot of. Uh, nostalgic feelings for this because it is one of my funnier stories it really is i heard about all this the next day and i kind of heard it from my mom's side first and then brandon's so i'm dying laughing on both sides and i'm like why'd you bother him mom i'm like ah. but uh yeah i was kind of awake for the first part and like i gotta go sleep he's gonna get his dick wet so uh that's <laughs> my homie you know, I will oh, take a bullet for Brandon or hide a body. No questions asked for Brandon. Well, I, I, pre- I appreciate the uh, the effort in uh, you know allowing me to uh, indulge my uh, human and the side. unnamed party who was coughed at. <coughs> thumbs up to you too. You're fucking awesome. Uh, she may or may not be a lesbian now. I'm not really sure, um, but I got it while I could. High five. High five. <laughs> Um, that brings us to uh, Stank Diddy, uh, Stank Dick Eddie's titty tally. So Hold on, I want to stop for a moment to talk about Stank Dick Eddie. We're recording this right now in the middle middle of this COVID nineteen crisis, and if you're a boomer, stay safe. I don't want you to die. I love you. <clears throat> and I coughed just for a theatrical effect. He was supposed to be doing the podcast with us today. Yeah, it, it, The Exorcist is one of his all-time favorite films, and uh, we wanted his input. But apparently he loves the safety of his children and the word of his wife more than he loves cinema. I just want that on record, <laughs> because right now, you know, I'm leaving the love of my life and the three girls who who, compri- who make up the extra pieces of my heart, so I could be up here to do this broad- podcast. And your uh, your efforts are much appreciated. The sacrifice will be noted in but, the book of heavy metal. In the book of heavy metal. Yes. But we are also taking precautions. We're sterilizing with hundred proof vodka. I haven't been to work in days. None of us have fucking fevers. Everybody, calm down. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, it will be a future history lesson and not still a mass panic. Yeah, or it will be the greatest April Fool's Day joke <laughs> of all time. You're all dead! <laughs> so, Ellen, on Stink Dick Eddie's titty tally, we have a whopping zero. I, that's not uh, to the be main, unexpected. The main crux of this movie is a 12-year-old girl, so of course fucking not, you sick perverts. You can go watch our, all her prison women's prison oh, movies for we'll, that. Don't worry, we'll talk about we'll yeah. talk about them as we continue. Two thumbs up from Drunk Tony. Uh, but I I can't leave this movie with a zero percent. So what we're gonna do? We're gonna sex it up. This is the Sexorcist, an eighteen year old Reagan who's a co-ed plays a sexy game of strip quija. But is tragically possessed by the chastity demon named Captain Horny. And after several unsuccessful gynecological exams and nowhere left to turn to, a sexorcism is needed to save Reagan. The power of cock compels you in William Wiener Fatty's The Sexorcist, Rated X. Oh, I would watch that, like, right now with Brandon. I don't care. I kind of, like, when I saw this movie, we'll get into this later, I was very young, like, second grade young, 
I'm like, oh, she's, I was just starting to think, like, oh, she's cute, and fucking, yeah, Reagan, Reagan hit all the boxes for me, until we get to the horror part, and the trauma, and I'll explain why I saw this in second grade. Continue, Brandon. Yeah, that, that, that's definite boner killer. Um, Hold on, I'm gonna, Brandon's gonna continue, I'm gonna go get some liquor. Go, please do so. So, what we're gonna do right now, we're gonna take a trip back in time, and I'm gonna talk about how we got from page to screen. Novelist William Peter Blatty was inspired to write The Exorcist from a 1949 case of demonic possession and exorcism of a boy that he had heard about while as a student of Georgetown University. Now, supposedly the priest, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, performed a series of rites on an anonymous boy documented under the pseudonym of Ronald Doe or Robbie Mannheim, depending on the source, the 14-year-old boy was alleged uh, victim of demonic possession, and the events were recorded uh, by the attending priest, J. Raymond Bishop. Now, sub- uh, subsequent supernatural claims surrounded the event uh, became primary elements of the th- 340-page novel, which was published in 1971. Have you seen the Timothy Dalton movie based on that specific story? I actually know I have not. What's it called? Uh, damn you, you hit me while I'm drunk. <laughs> uh, if you look up his IMDb, because I remember Timothy Dalton's in it, and they actually based, this is the true story behind The Exorcist. It's actually like a fun, like, if Lifetime did The Exorcist kind of movie, because it's very, it feels that made sounds, for TV. That sounds fucking it feels, terrible. <laughs> it feels made for TV, and it's just, and I say Lifetime, it's not that it's like some... Somebody's getting raped or beaten or something like that. It's just so cheesy and hokey that it's almost amazing. Video West, not Video West of Morristown, uh, the one by Food City on Buffalo Trail, whatever one that burnt down. Oh, fuck. I can't they had it, and I watched it there. And We're talking about hometown stuff that you probably Hometown stuff. Sorry, people. But this is where I made, was made aware that there was an actual, there is a movie, and I'm sorry, people, I failed you. I have to Google the title, but Timothy Dalton is in it. Uh, my least favorite James Bond, but he's still James Bond, so I'm not, so fuck me. Uh, based on the actual story behind it, it's actually a pretty good, real cheesy feeling for made for TV movie. I, mean, I, love, I love a good slice of cheese on occasion. Um, reportedly, the, the credit for the novel being published in the first place goes to Tippi Hedren from Alfred really? Hitchcock's The Birds. I did Bird. not know that. Now, the reason of this is like her and uh, William Peter Blatty were friends, and he had given her an advanced copy of like the the script before it actually got published. Now, whether he did this intentionally as a like, "Hey, your husband is a publicist," or they're just good friends, that's that's to be decided. But it, she was so enamored with the story that she woke up her then husband, Agent Noel Marshall, in the middle of the night and demanded that he publish the novel before someone else could snatch up the rights. I do have to ask. Have you read the novel? I have, um, but I was in high school, so it's been quite okay, a while. I've read it actually a couple times. It's a very great movie. And uh, Legion, the book they base Exorcist 3 on, is a pretty good novel. But change, but I can totally see why somebody in the movie industry with a publisher husband would do this. Because the, the first book, and actually... Like, I read it probably about four years ago was the last time. And it's a very cinematic-feeling uh, book. There's a lot of internal 
you know, stuff with like Karis and his mom or or Reagan's mom dealing with the shit. But like if you just take the beat for beat action of the book, this is probably one of the most faithful adaptations I've ever seen in Hollywood. In fact, uh, it's so close to the story, but believe it or not, the book is way more violent than, oh, than, God, than yes. the movie. Yes, and, they actually had to tone it down. Yeah, they tone it down quite a bit. In, in fact, in one of the scenes uh, involving a crucifix and uh, and the a nether regions of a 12-year-old girl, which we'll, we'll talk about at length as we continue on. Now, the novel was a runaway success, and it would lead to what may describe as the scariest film of all time, but it owes a considerable debt to the success of the novel for Rosemary's Baby from 1967 for priming the world's appetite for demonic literature. Uh, two sequels followed and two prequels, which that's a whole fucking story <laughs> to tell. There's, There's one prequel, but two of them, really. Yeah, it's the same script uh, made by two different directors and almost the same exi- cast. It's and, mainly the third act that's really different. Yeah. Uh, and, and there was a TV show that ran for a couple of seasons. Um, I have refused to watch it. Don't watch I have watched it. I have watched it, and I will firmly say, you know, I give shit Brandon, Brandon shit all the time about not watching things because he refuses, like Evil Dead, the remake. Oh, my God. I'm never going to live us down. He's never going to live it down, but in this one instance... He's totally right. Don't waste your fucking time. I was just watch this while I was cleaning house and shit. It's not worth it. You know, here this this is my take on it. I just don't appreciate or find horror in television form compelling unless it is an anthology system a la Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, that type of stuff. I, I can enjoy that because... Are you saying you don't love all billion seasons of Supernatural? I fucking hate Supernatural! <laughs> uh, I love Marianne Elaine. She loves it, but no. Oh, man. That, to me, that is the most panderingly If it would have ended after like three seasons, it'd have been like, eh, it's okay, it's something. Uh, I just I hate, I hate anything that's on the CW... And that includes all those terrible DC shows. I'm sorry. I saw the the DC Crisis on Infinite Earth crossover special. And they kind of wrote out the bad part of the DCEU cinematic universe. So that they get a thumbs up Okay, well, well, good for them. It's still, it's still shit television for teenagers. So I, I won't <laughs> disagree with that. Now, obviously, we can't get into The Exorcist without talking about both the author of the book and the screenwriter for the film. But first, let's read the film's synopsis. So, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind. When a 12-year-old girl is possessed by a mysterious entity, her mother seeks the help of two priests to save her. So, that's that's pretty bare bones. But let's, let's extrapolate a little more of what the film really entails. Uh, we have a mother uh, who's an, a film actress, and uh, they've moved uh, on t- uh, to uh, it's Washington, Washington D.C. Uh, to film this movie. And she's got a mercurial existence, moving around a lot, taking time away from her daughter. So there's the guilt from that. And her and her husband have yeah, so separated. separated. It's a very tumultuous time in poor Reagan's life. And uh, there's a lot of illusions, more so in the book than in the movie, that she may or may not be having been um, molested by the director and friend to her mother. That's why, like, honestly, like, this is 99.9 times out of 10, the book is better. In this case, the book is better. 
in uh, Exorcist 3 slash Legion. No, watch the fucking movie. Don't read the book. The end of the book sucks. Yeah, there's no exorcism in the book. They added that into they the movie. They just ended, oh, blah, blah, blah. it basically just fucking ends. And it's it really, pit- no, they added that for the movie. But, um. So, you know, they're having this gathering, and then you have uh, the moment where Reagan comes out and she pisses on a rug. Which was amazingly done for Scary Movie 2. I'm sorry. That's what <laughs> I laughed my fucking ass I off. I love James person. Woods. <laughs> Shit. Now you're you're a father. I'm not a father. I want to put you in the perspective. Uh, if you were having uh, people over, and then one of your daughters, you know, at this age, came out and pissed in front of everybody, everybody can fuck off. I'm gonna see what the fuck's wrong with my kid. Like a hundred percent, not just. I mean, it's not that the mother doesn't love her daughter, doesn't show care, but she. She, I'm she, telling everybody to get the fuck out unless they're a doctor at that party. That's well, just I, me. Oh, well, that, that means you're a good father. However, she she's a little late in the uh, attention to her daughter. At first time, she's like, you know, she's an actress. An actress. Actresses and actors. No offense to anybody out there listening. There's a level of narcissism that you have to have to be a good actor and actor. I mean that for any of the greats. I want to be on screen. I want to be seen for this. And like Daniel Day Lewis probably jacks off thinking about people watching him. Um, yeah, uh, they talk about um, somebody that it really takes acting seriously on uh, the set of My Left Foot. Yeah. He made everybody carrying him around Fuck as, that guy. as if he actually did not have the use of his legs. That may be taking it. I played too far. with his winger a little. <laughs> I'm just playing. Sorry, people. I'm really drunk and I'm sad right now, so I got a little excuse. Okay, as although inspired by quote unquote the real events of the macabre tale of demonic possession, um, it came from the mind of the great William Peter Blatty. Now he's had a storied career in novel form, but uh, he's had a he's dipped his toes in the cinematic field on, on a few occasions. Uh, he did the Ninth Configuration, which is this like psychological drama in, uh, from 1980, starring Stacey Keach about like mentally unwell servicemen. Have you ever seen the Ninth Configuration? Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, like as soon as you said the name, I'm like, I've seen that. And you said Stacey Keach, and blesses God rest his soul. Is he dead? I, I don't know if he is. I don't know not. if he's not, but I remember the he cleft would be fucking lips. old either. The way. cleft lip scars, what I remember, <laughs> so I knew the name Stacey Keach. I do remember that. Like that is a, that's a pretty good movie. Um, yeah, I, I he directed that, um, and uh, he would continue on, and he wrote uh, the screenplay for Exorcist Three, adapted from his film or novel Legion. And the 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 that's one of the like that and Fight Club and Forrest Gump are the only times I can remember the movies better than the book. Exorcist Three is terrific. Oh God, yeah, fucking it's it's my favorite George C. Scott I performance love ever. C. Scott, I don't know that I'd go that far. I, I for me, the Changeling, he's so good in that. That it, if you ever do that movie, I'm I'm going to cut you if you do it without me because that movie scared the shit out of me too. But no, like like his weird like how did that like yeah how he interacts with the priests and and the dream sequence. Hands down, I can say comfortably, and I love Patton. Don't get me wrong on that. George C. Scott, Exorcist Three, my favorite performance. Uh, Patton, it's hard to argue against Patton. Rommel, you magnificent <laughs> bastard! I read your books. <laughs> I quote that all the time. Yeah. Now, h- horror aside, um, Blatty wrote the screenplay for the Pink Panther sequel, A Shot in the Dark. Oh, that's which a is good one. which is the second film in that long story and series. Top. Th- 
three of the movies. Oh, it's so good. There's a lot of like, uh, it's almost like proto um, airplane style comedy. Really, yeah, a lot get of that. lot of background jokes and stuff. His his background was actually in comedy, and when he set out to write The Exorcist, it was like, hey, I'm, I'm doing fine, but I'm not really hitting the the zeitgeist of like Americana. You know, and he wanted to transcend, so he moved into this field to try and tap into another audience. Comedy and horror, to me, those are my two favorite genres of film or fiction, and they both are very, they're like the flip sides of the same coin. They hit you at a gut level. If something's going to make you laugh, it's going to make you laugh. If something's going to fuck you up in the head while you're watching it, it's going to mess you up. Uh, that's why I, I think that's why to this day, like Ghostbusters is the perfect fucking movie. You just took the words right out of my mouth. Because it, it, it has, like, when I was a little kid, and I'm a little older than Brandon, so right well, when not, it came, Not too much older. Not but. too much older, but I remember when Ghostbusters was in new release. I was very little. I would, our couch was in the middle of the living room, the librarian ghost. I would go hide behind the couch while she screamed at the guys because it, it was too scary. And I'd come back around for the rest of it. But they're both uh, genres that get you viscerally. If something's funny, it's funny. If something's horrific, it's horrific. So that's why I think it makes perfect sense for William Peter Blatty to be in comedy and horror. Don't you think that that also like lends itself to actors? Like sometimes, like the the funniest actors give the best. Uh, dramatic performances. Oh, absolutely. Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Um, Robin Williams. Robin Williams. Like, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, we're going to definitely talk about uh, the aspects of horror and comedy being almost blacklisted by the Academy a little later on. But uh, let's talk a little more about Blatty. Uh, you know, legendary career aside, without a doubt, The Exorcist looms as the most important work of his career. Um and it was recognized by the Academy Awards for his win as a Best Adapted Screenplay. Now, you'd think he'd be pretty happy about this, uh, but you have to view the circumstances in a broader scope. The Exorcist was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Horror movies are never nominated to begin with. With the exception of, like I was telling Brandon before the, scr- uh, the recording... Silence of the Lambs is a glorified slasher movie. It is, but it but it's classified as a drama thriller. Drama thriller. So this is the same thing. This is the an earlier an earlier version of shitting on horror first. I I completely agree. Now the Exorcist only won two Academy Awards, one for sound and one for best adapted <clears throat> screenplay. Blatty had this to say about the Exorcist being snubbed aside for those two Oscars. The Academy should fold its tent and go back to baking apple strudel or whatever they can <laughs> do. That's, that's that's a, a great quote. That's a nice way of saying fuck you. <laughs> you guys are snobs. And and I don't want to be like be one of those people that's like, "Oh, well winning an Oscar isn't important." Well, it can be, but at the same time, like I mean, recognition of your peers is an important thing, but the, the Can anybody listening to this remember any other movie from 1973? I certainly can't. Now, there, there, are, there are a few that are, are going to stand out. And we'll, Don't argue uh, with me. We'll, we'll break those yeah. down as we go on, but I think, by and large, the Academy made absolutely across the board the wrong decisions in handing out as these As they Oscars. usually do. Because here we Green are. Green book. Almost 50 years later, 
put that in perspective. Almost 50 years later, and people are still talking about The Exorcist. Do you have in your notes what actually happened to when? Oh, I can't wait. Because I don't know. I'm telling the people right now, I don't fucking know what won the Academy Award in 1973. we'll, we'll, We'll talk about it as we continue on. So... Let's talk about why is horror demonized, and that's pun intended, <laughs> by critics and the Academy. Now, you brought up the, po- the point about horror and, and comedy kind of being like brother and sister. They're visceral. They're, they're, they're and I hate to say this because I love everybody, they're the common man's emotions. They're not rarefied, dramatic, seventh seal bullshit, which I love the seventh seal. R.I.P. Max Boncito. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about but, it. But, like... They are the visceral gut punches of cinema. But I'm gonna I'm gonna argue on the side of the Academy just just a hair, because horror and comedy are both emotions that are not universal. Things that scare you and things that scare me might be different. Things that make me laugh and things that make you laugh might be different. So they're very much subjective. Whereas in drama. It's it's a little more of an even playing field, and and you can definitely. Uh, it's a more universal experience. Yeah, but I I think that there's a certain standard of like filmmaking that should be uh, given these awards, like um, you know lighting and sound and things that are sort of universal. Like they're a, they're they're a criteria for what makes them good. However, horror and sound uh, horror and sound horror and comedy are a little more ethereal. And it's harder to nail down what makes things good. Okay, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm going to use it in my argument. What won the Oscar for 1973's Best Picture? Or what won the Oscar, other Oscars in 19... Don't answer me yet. You will get to that later. What movie are we talking about right now? You're at- what movie... I'm sorry, again, to interrupt you. What movie taken for inflation beats the shit out of Avengers Endgame? The biggest movie of yours or, uh, or mine generation. Horror and comedy, they are subjective, but they're also, in a weird way, universal. Like, there are people all around the world that love fucking Ghostbusters. Again, I keep coming back to Ghostbusters because I know I win an argument with Brandon <laughs> that way. You won't ever you won't ever sway my mind on anything about Ghostbusters. Yeah, no, so I use it. It's a it. straw man argument that I'm willing to participate in. <laughs> yeah, so I use it for me. Um, but, like... And I get what you're saying, like, oh, it's like, oh, fuck, I can't remember what all was nominated for the year that uh, Shakespeare in Love won, but it was like super big movies that were probably more subjective. But again, this is the whole problem with the Academy. Harvey Weinstein. We won't talk about Harvey Weinstein. He's a rapist, and he is going to get fucked up in prison. I can't wait. I'd buy paper to hope- watch him get raped. <laughs> wow. Um, I agree. Fuck that guy. Um, Hashtag him to fuck him. <laughs> Hashtag rape Harvey Weinstein in prison. <laughs> Yay! But no, like, no, I, I get Brandon's argument that it is a subjective and not objective force. But with things like this, things that universally, obviously with a an adjusted gross bigger than Avengers Endgame, Exorcists fuck people up. Do you think that, that that almost works against it, though? Because they they seem to like they hype it. 
Is well, that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that like because of how much money it made, it almost discounts it because no, they I don't, don't I'm saying from oh, their yeah. point of view, not I get their point of view. Oh, it won too much money. Too many oh, people are enjoying too this. Too many it people can't are be enjoying it. Let's get Paris which Parasite should have won everything. I recently just saw that. Fucking great movie. It's my favorite Bong Joon Ho movie and I, I love Snowpiercer and Oak Joy or Oak Joy or whatever the fuck's oh, on Netflix. Snow, Snowpiercer is terrific and, and and I'll admit I have not seen Parasite yet. Parasite's great. It's um, worth a rant. Um it's it's on Netflix, I think. No. Is it not? Okay, no, well then I I will see it eventually because I mean you'll I, like it. I, I, I know you'll up, like it. I usually end up seeing everything. Bong Joon Ho's movie, or I probably said his name very wrong because I am drunk, fat Tony right now. Uh, his movies have a great way of starting you one place and ending you in a completely different one. Well, let's go. This to is the most effective. Arc. Well, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you think you're watching one genre of movie and you're like, haha, No, you're well, not. No, I'm just saying, like, it's it's. That's the sign of a good filmmaker. It to really be able is, to, and that's to why. take one place and end up in another. Anyway, that's what I'm saying. Is you know, it necessary. I can see Brandon's argument of how successful it was working against it, but uh, also, fuck the Academy. I'm drunk. <laughs> okay, you know, whatever reason, horror is unfairly criticized by the Hollywood elite. Um, Blatty also believed that his intentions with the story may have fallen upon deaf ears. With many critics, he had this to say. If the universe is clockwork and man is no more than molecules, how is it that there is love of as a god would love and that man like Damien Karras would deliberately give up his life for a stranger like Reagan McNeil? This is an enigma far more puzzling and far more worth pondering than the scandalous problem of evil. This is the mystery of goodness. It is the point all critics miss. Now, the, the funny thing about all this... Uh, Blatty's intentions weren't, uh, they weren't even meant for the story necessarily to be scary, but more of a rumination or an exploration of faith. Now, I don't want to get into a whole huge, uh, God versus no God debate. Hell ne- Satan. Necessarily. <laughs> and, and we'll discuss the religious material in, in the film as we go oh, along. Yes. But it does raise interesting questions in the statement. Does good exist without God? Are we just molecular puppets? Do we have free will? Nature versus nurture. With that being said, let's strip away the religious aspects for just a moment. It's implied in the film that director Burke um, has been molesting Reagan. And it's more implied in in the novel. So my question to you is, does this film work as a non-religious story, as in Reagan is just an abused child, not a demonically possessed little girl? Um, With the exception of the very last sequence of Karis, unless he's taken the guilt from his mother, I I just disregarded my own argument. Like He could be taking on his own self-guilt when he's like, take me, take me. And, you know, kills himself to release himself from that. That's it. I really didn't know that or that quote from him. It it, it, it kind of can. It is a nice rumination like that. That hit it, me. You know, I, I, and I agree from his viewpoint um, that you can explore that aspect of it. But there's just, there's too, there's too many obvious I'm a demon. Paranormal things that happen in the yeah, movie like, to too many people to entirely discount. You've the never devil. been in the room with a pubescent 
teenager in their period. You know, if a okay, dresser went wrong. across the floor with me, I wouldn't know. No. I'm wrong. Or I'm. That, that, <laughs> that, that, well, that that's, does it for us. This it was just hey, a girl episode. <laughs> no, no, no. I see what you're meaning. I do agree that I believe it's a paranormal aspect from the a paranormal entity from the movie. But if you step back from that, I can see what Blatty's saying. That, you know, it is a subjective thing. Does good exist without God? Because I've read the book several times. Seen the movie more times than I can count. So, you know, Supernatural is where I'm landing. I, I have to agree with you. I mean, it's interesting to, to view the, the film through that lens. But I think at a certain point, there's just too many coincidences that you, you can't discount no. the paranormal aspect of it. Now, William Peter Blatty laid the groundwork for the cinematic masterpiece being The Exorcist, um, but without the right director, the pieces just would not have fallen into place. Thankfully, William Friedkin was waiting in the wings to bring the nightmare to the silver screen. William Friedkin, or as he has come to be nicknamed, Hurricane Billy, and we'll explain why he has this nickname as we go along, um... He takes the reins. Now, he's uh, directed quite a few things that uh, you and I, I both love, oh, and yeah. I'm sure the film going public at large would would be would recognize. Uh, Cruising, which to me is one of the scariest movies ever made. It really is. And I'm, I'm not a gay man, neither are you, but I, I that movie's scary to begin with. And actually, we just talked about this yeah. on uh, Nightmare 2, Nightmare I 2, probably. But, man, that is a terrifying movie. Um, oddly enough, a little interjection is about here. Um... Uh, Al Pacino was very close to playing the role of Damian Carius uh, in this movie, um, and for whatever reason, he didn't get the role, but he ended up working with him on Cruising. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A., great movie. The Guardian, really, really underrated film from the like the early 90s. Oh, I know. Yeah, it took me a second. That's like, the, where the, the, the tree yeah. and then like the, the chainsaw to it, and it's like a, a woman taking care of a child. And yes. That's, that's scary stuff. Uh, Blue Chips, uh, Shaq movie. I've seen it. It's, yeah. it's fine. Dating old team. Bug. That movie is criminally underrated. Uh, I fucking love that movie. That's the movie where I first was introduced to Michael Shannon, and after watching that in the theater, I was like, it's just a matter of time. If not for this movie or another movie, he wins an Academy Award, and now he's one of those, like, hailed dramatic actors. Oh, yeah, he's fucking amazing anything. But... The movie that he won Oscar for Best Director for, and the one that, uh, it's one of my all time favorite movies. I love Gene Hackman across the board, but his signature role, other than Lex Luthor, in the French connection as Popeye Doyle. It's really fucking I'm getting, amazing. look, I have, I have fucking goosebumps. He, he's just not kidding. I put this on everything. He just showed me his arm. He has fucking goosebumps. I love the French connection and the French connection. And his earlier output is why he got this role. Now, the public at large know him for his big screen output, um, but chief reason he was handpicked by William Peter Blatty to direct The Exorcist is because of his background as a documentarian, including 1962's The People vs. Paul Crump. It's about a young black man who was sentenced to die in the electric chair for a crime that he may or may not have committed. Now, uh, Blatty was so convinced of his innocence that he directed this documentary. Um, he also did 1966's The Thin Blue Line about rising crime rates combated by American police forces. Um, uh, Buddy had this to say about freaking taking the reins as the director of The Exorcist. The film delivers to this very day 
that very precious commodity a powerful emotional response. Whether it's a positive or a negative, that doesn't matter. You were alive in those two hours. Novel is one thing, but you put it on the screen, and the story was begging to be a flop. Every studio passed, and they were just afraid. I thought this needs an honest director that's not a Catholic, that's not ag- that's agnostic, and on the subject can give this incredibly this incredible story such a sense of documentary reality that it will work. I had seen The French Connection, and I wanted Billy Friedkin and Warner Brothers begrudgingly agreed. Now, nevertheless, the documentary approach was absolutely the right direction to take the film in, but a lot of modern moviegoers probably call the movie visually uninteresting, and I think they're missing out on some thematic uh, subtleties to the film. They're they're missing out on the horrors of actual reality. When something bad happens to you in your life, it's not cinematic, it's blunt it's there. It happens. That's what this movie has in its favor. And like he said, the documentarian film style of it, it's not like it's, all close-ups and dramatic you know, It's dramatic very sweets. fly on the wall. It's right there in your face. This is what's fucking happening. Yeah, it's almost like there's just a camera set up in the house. Exactly. it's filming the moment. That's what... Oh. Damn Gen Zers don't get. <laughs> Freakin' had this to say about the look of the movie. I designed the film so that there, there would be blazingly bright scenes, as in Iraq, and then there would be these dark scenes in the attic, in the exorcism room, and then the whole film would alternate between the forces of dark and in light in a literal way. I want to talk about the themes opposed to haunted house jump scares. The movie, to me, is scary because of its grounded reality rather than every 20 seconds... Boo! The, uh, boo, or, you know, something. There are those moments in the film, like... Uh, there's, they there's earn one, them. But they earn them. The, to me, the biggest one that stands out is when Chris McNeil, the mother, is in the attic, and she's carrying the uh, the candle, and it just erupts, like, out of nowhere. In complete silence. There's no scary music sting to let you know that this is happening. It just happens, and that moment that moment is earned. Oh yeah, like absolutely. Like this, this, and I hate to draw modern parallels, but you know, maybe we have younger. Hereditary doesn't have a lot of big jump scares. This movie doesn't have a lot of big jump scares, but the ones they do are fucking. Earned. It's about a slow ratcheting tension. Yeah, you don't just start out like, okay, there's one horror movie. I got in a big argument with somebody before. The Exorcism of Emily Rose. All that movie is, is jumping straight to the jump scare. There's no build-up. There's no sin. Who gives a fuck? You know, oh, that's Dexter's Dexter's sister. (laughs) Sorry, I'm slurring a little bit. I I like that movie, um, but I appreciate the elements of that film that are like uh, a courtroom stuff. Yeah, none of the scares land. This movie is like, this is reality. This is what's happening. Fuck you, there is no... We're not pumping the brakes on anything. You're just going to see the crash coming. You know, except in the couple little jump scares there are, are fucking earned. Now, one of the elements of the film... Uh, that really lends itself to creating this idea that you're seeing reality is the practical effects in the film. Now, we'll get to the makeup effects a little later on, but 
everything in this film, like there's this one great scene where you just see plates and all these objects from the room just being hurled at the window and they're all real. They all have weight. You feel them crack and break as they collide with the wall as opposed to like a film that came out about a decade later, Poltergeist, which I absolutely love, but you have these scenes recreated very similarly the only difference is it's uh, it's a composite, um, very hard matte lines, and they're floating in front of the characters. Yeah, this is dangerous. It's all in front of you. It's all it's in front there. of you. It's in camera. It's actually happening. And subconsciously, even if you don't know that, I feel like just the reality of the moment seeps into you as you're watching this, and you feel it. It's not a synthetic thing like Poltergeist or, or any movie now that's made with well, One of my CGI. favorite things about this movie is like, at, and I'm skipping ahead a bit, but how they refrigerated the set to get the fog. Yeah, the, the exhale of breath, the you carbonated know, It's breath. real. It's not digitally added, It's which they didn't have that capacity to do then. It's like these are these are people in a cold environment. And they're supposed to be in a cold environment, so you see it and you feel it. And I agree completely. Like it, it really, it's it just adds, hits with your like lizard brain better. That holy shit, this is happening. And it adds a lot to the performances uh, because they're actually in a cold environment. And it was done at a great expense to get something a set that big. That oh cold. yeah, the, a lot of the actual expense of the movie was paying for that refrigerated room. Yeah. Um, let's. I want to. Uh, take a step in in that direction um actors want to just act and we're going to talk about how william freaking motivated his actors on the set with unorthodox methods but having scenes where things are thrown and like they're really interacting with the environment lends itself to a more real based you know output I want to know from you, have you ever been in a position where you've been so scared that you've not been able to, you know, interact with your environment? Like, what what scares you to a point, or what has scared you to a point where you've not been able to just continue on? The only thing I can think of is a moment where I was driving an ex-girlfriend's car who we'll call Cuntface McGee. I know exactly who you're he talking about. You know who I'm talking about. And I had a choice. I was. It was a great day. It was like the first warm day of spring. And I was about to run a red light. And I had the choice between T-boning an old couple or letting them T-bone me. And I locked up. And like the only thing I was able to do was hit the gas a little more so they could T-bone me so I didn't hit some old man. That's uh, like viscerally like fear related. That's the most I've ever been like locked up in my body. And it's just it's a, it's a, it's it's an in, uh, you're incapable of describing it. But I did total Cuntface McGee's car, so there's that. And I'm giving a thumbs up right <laughs> thumbs now. Thumbs up! Fear has an interesting way in motivating uh, people, you know, beyond film. I'm just talking about just in general. Fear, fear, hunger, uh, those are probably the two Fear, hunger, and horniness, yeah. honestly, yeah. like, are the biggest motivators in life. 
And uh, William Peter Blatter was able to get performances out of people because of the utilization of fear on this film, probably more effectively than any other director ever. Stanley? Stanley Kubrick, and uh, this is a roundabout way of getting back there, Stanley Kubrick on the set of The Shining abused... Fucking, uh, what's her name? Uh, Shelley Duvall, yeah. to a point where, I mean, she, she was lost hair. She was losing hair and she was just so mentally drained. But you want to know what this film does that that film didn't? What? They refrigerated the fucking set. Exactly. Because on the, in the hedge maze, there is no exhale. You don't ever see exhale. I'm done with Stanley Kubrick. Fuck him. He's a faker. He's just a piece he was, of shit. He was so good at yeah. the details, but that's one thing this movie has over that one. It has a lot of things over it, yeah. but, but that's one definite real-life environment. a real environmental factor in the movie. That shit was cold. So that that goes back you know, to the William freaking I'm a fine where Stanley Kubrick is buried and pissed on his grave now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know that it go that far. Well, I, mean, I love cinema, so I will. <laughs> okay, well, we'll double back to Hurricane Billy as we continue on, but first we have to talk about our principal cast. Ellen Burstyn plays the role of Chris McNeil. Um, well-known actress. Um, you've probably seen her in When a Man Loves a Woman, Requiem for a Dream, where... Um, the happiest it, movie of all time. Yes, Darren Ar- Aronofsky's uh, great love story about... <laughs> Uh, is it her- heroin in that movie? Yeah, it was heroin. Ass to ass. Ass well, to ass. She was addicted to diet pills. <laughs> oh, but that made her go ass to ass? No, the the mom, Ellen Burstyn, she just went fucking insane and got oh, I'm talking therapy. about I'm talking about Jennifer Connelly. Jennifer Connelly went ass to ass for heroin. And, you know, <laughs> growing up watching The Labyrinth, it, just, it was a culmination of my childhood dream of seeing her go... Ass to ass with a double dildo with a prostitute for drugs. You know, because that's what I was thinking. That's the only thing missing from Labyrinth. I mean, that's the fucking... That's like, it was 90s, right, that that movie came out? But that's the most 2020 thing I think I've heard. I mean, it's simply now they're doing it for toilet paper. So she was also in Red Dragon. Um, she was in the terrible Wicker Man remake that I absolutely love because it's so bad it's good. Like, no, okay, it's so bad it's good, but let's give credit, all the credit where it's due, is it's so bad it's good because of the one, the only, Nicholas Cage. Yeah. Hail Cage! Hail Cage! Everybody else just, they're there for a check and reading the script. Nick Cage was there to fuck shit up. That's, that's right. Um, she was also in Draft Day, which was directed by Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters. You just got busted. I've been sitting here thinking this whole time, how the fuck is he going to bust anybody? I didn't know about that. So uh, yeah. he, I, I am impressed, Brandon. That movie is about the Cleveland Browns. So from the bottom of my heart, fuck the Cleveland Browns. Go Steelers. <laughs> AFC North, baby. Um, Ellen took home an Oscar for her role in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was directed by Martin Scorsese, the great Martin Scorsese, who's keeping cinema alive. Uh, just did the Except Irishman. He's bitching great about Marvel movies. Okay, I, I he he's wrong, but at the same time, he's right. I get no. He's an old man who doesn't view 21st century cinema as it is. He's entitled to his opinion, totally 100. percent but don't don't push back on it. And I would want to say my favorite thing is that his daughter or granddaughter. I'm not certain. I'm drunk. I'm drunk, fat Tony, right now. I'm pretty certain his daughter wrapped all of his Christmas presents in Marvel movie. That, Christmas that's that's paper. true. That's absolutely true. Um, needless to say, you know he directed this great movie, and Ellen was 
given this great reaction because of it. Um, but her role in The Exorcist, uh, she was nominated for Best Actress, but she lost out to Glenda Jackson from a movie, A Touch of Class. Who is Glenda Jackson, you may ask? Exactly. Exactly. They, they, Who gives a fuck about what the fucking Academy decides? They they fucked up big time. And I say this without hyperbole in the least. Ellen Burstyn gives one of the best performances I have ever seen in a horror film or otherwise. I do want to say that also Tony Collette in Hereditary, our generation's version of this, got fucked. Yeah. That entire year, there's no actress, actor, or anybody that gave as a viscerally, emotionally impactful, realistic performance as Tony Collette in Hereditary. It's the same damn thing, but she didn't even get fucking nominated. I, I agree. That uh, shows you how much, they how did. much more. They're the, worse now. <laughs> yeah, the the Academy won't even won't even acknowledge. Uh, and that's why the the um, the Golden Globes are, I guess, important. I guess because even the press can buy those. But well, but still, at least some people are getting nominated for exactly. Golden Globes, and they won't even get touched by the Academy Awards. I want to talk about her performance uh, from the perspective of parent versus non-parent. I'm not a parent. You are. We were supposed to have another parent here with us today, uh, by the name of Stink Dick Eddie, but uh, apparently he was scared. We're recording this right now in the middle of the COVID panic, that hopefully will be viewed as a panic and not, oh, this was the last bit of the end of the world, but me and Brandon are very sanitized right now by 100 proof vodka. He would have been safe, but he didn't show up, so I'm a step-parent, but I will, I will die or kill for my children. So his questions to me are almost as valid as they would have been to Stank Dick Eddie, but he bitched out. Okay, well, let's let's unpack that. <laughs> if you were in the position of Chris McNeil and one of your daughters was showing signs of possession, which, I mean, you're obviously... Writing off is like some kind of neurological or you biological. Know. See, I started dating the love of my life, Sarah, right before her daughters started to get their period and go hit puberty. So I'm kind of living in the exorcist right now <laughs> to a less extreme. But I, but how, but seriously, like if, if you were in the, the thick of this and you had a child that was just going through like these horrible I things. I could imagine it. Like, like how, uh, how do you... Probably uh, like the mother in this movie. Go through medical community first and then like her going to an exorcist is like the 21st century version of, you know, essential oils and crystals and shit. I do whatever it fucking takes. If I heard something might work for them, I'd fucking do it. If, you know... Oh, bald eagle feathers will help her. I'd go find a bald eagle and kill it. I'd reach out for anything. So I get the mother's desperation. The mother is definitely an agnostic who's living in the world in Hollywood movie. So she she reaches out almost embarrassingly for a, for a exorcist in this movie. But it's her last hope. It's the only thing she can think of. So I totally get that desperation and fear. And the character of Chris McNeil is an interesting one. I mean, she's an actress and, you know, a well-meaning but absentee parent. And most importantly, she's a non-religious person, which is an interesting position to be put in with a, with a story that is 
heavily leaning on. Mitch better be going to church after this movie yeah, is all I got to exactly. say. Um, her going down the line and exhausting every scientific option um, possible leads her to a last-ditch effort in the form of an exorcism. The scene on at the track between her and Father Karras is one of the scariest scenes of the film for me. And it's just a mother at the end of her rope pleading for anybody to, to help her child. I'm not a parent. And if this scene scares me, I think that... I can't uh, imagine. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. Again, like... Any parent out there will know, and again, you'll you'll deride me for oh he's not even a parent, but like I'd kill for these girls. I can't imagine the desperate, desperate. You're clinging, your nails are scraping the pier before you get sucked out into the ocean and drown. Like raw fear of like I've got to do something to help my daughter. That's again why I think this this hit audiences more back then. You didn't have all the social media parenting tips and Facebook groups to do all the like. It's just you and the world. You okay, you're the completely world. confined beyond. It's your just, house and the world, and your house is 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 falling in. It's like the foundation's crumbling, and you have one shot at maybe again. It's it's just me as dumb as essential oils or crystals, but if I lost all hope and that was it. You goddamn right. I'm going to have like all kinds of essential oil. If that's like, if all scientific hope is gone, I'm going to cling to whatever irrational hope I can. Luckily, in her case, it's a rational hope because it's called the fucking exorcist. And <laughs> not like, it's not, called, it's not called the doctor. <laughs> the doctor. So luckily, her irrational hope, you know, pays dividends. But I totally get that visceral pity your stomach thing just dread of what's going to happen to your kids. I mean, like I said before, her performance is next level and it only escalates as the film continues. She had this to say about preparing for a complex role. You have to hold of a string that you're following and you're following where this question leads to that question. And it keeps on going until you come to some specific understanding of this human being, as opposed to other human beings in the world. She came with her A-game, but Hurricane Billy implanted some unorthodox methods to get a more realistic performance out of her. I want to talk about the scene, uh, the legendary scene, where she is thrown backwards <sighs> into the desk. Yes. Or the, the dresser drawer. Yeah. So, they had rigged her up with this cable, and they had a, you know, a, a guy standing off screen, like, ripping her. And they did this scene a couple of times. And they just weren't getting the reaction out of her that they wanted. So on the second or third take, whatever, uh, she kind of complains like, hey, you're going to hurt me if you keep yanking harder. So William Freakin looks at her bald face and is like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do it easier. And he gives a little you know, visual cue to the guy standing off screen. And they yanked her way harder than they ever had. So... Ellen suffered a permanent spinal injury from the fall in this stunt. These are almost, I mean, they're not almost, there, there are mean-spirited methods that Freakin would use to get this realistic performance from his actors, and this is why he was nicknamed Hurricane Billy. I do want to say. Because he would come in through like a hurricane. I am willing to accept the sacrifice she made to enjoy the movie I got. <laughs> it's very, it's a difficult prospect. 
But, you know, I'm willing to accept. No, it's horrible. And it's the same kind of bullying. It's worse bullying tactics than Stanley Kubrick had. But that's why the performance is better, too. Well, I mean, it's definitely a You should a never do that to an actress. You could never get away with that now. But No. You, could, you couldn't even approach something like this no. now. Because it's so much more of a studio-driven. Do it driven, in post. Well, that's That's, that's how it'd be done now. Um, there are many more incidences in the film of this behavior, and we'll bring them up as we go along, but we got to talk about the ethics of these methods. So, you were just saying that like this would never happen now, but back then, it was a much looser structure. When you have, especially a child on the set, and you're putting her and other people through these trying methods... I, I understand the auteur to get the best performance, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. Is, is it ethical to, to do oh, so? Oh, I will absolutely say it's not ethical. I'll, I'll agree with that 100%. But can you argue with the results? Now, but let me stop here. This is the last time I think the problem and the blessing and curse of this era of filmmaker is this is the last time a director had that much power. Like, I will do whatever the fuck I want to you. Fuck you. I want my vision. That couldn't be done nowadays. Not in the studio scene. Not in the like, studio scene. I'm sure there's some indie movies. or Lars snuff, von or, Trier. <laughs> Lars von Trier, bless his heart. Well, well, that's a whole other thing. But, again, that's kind of the exception that proves the rule. Like... It's unethical. I will definitely say 100%. It's totally unethical. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't, you know, do this. The, luckily for him and Kubrick in certain, certain points, or Kubrick if you're a film snob, fuck you, uh, <laughs> they got the results. I'm sure there was a bunch of tyrannical assholes on, like, uh, Roger Corman movies that tried the same shit that just, you know, into that bullshit. If they, if they tried that shit on a Roger Corman picture, they were probably probably fired because he was just like, one take and you're done. One take. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, no, I'll agree with the, un- the unethicalness of it. I'll, I will agree that sh- it probably shouldn't have been done. But at the end of the day, you know, for I- this specific instance, it fucking works. You gotta suffer for your art. Um and and she very literally did. Now, aside from accidents, she actually speaks very highly of William Freakin in her time on the set of The Exorcist, but laments, we meant to make a good movie. We made, we meant to make a scary movie, but I had no idea it was going to be that good or scary. That's that's probably the greatest testament. Honestly, yeah. Like, I could see somebody from, viewing it from the outside back then. Oh, we got a little girl possessed. We're going to have some scares. It's going to be a good movie. The worldwide... Again, I'm still in shock of what the adjusted gross is. I'm still sitting here like, Dude, just wait. Just hold your horses because we're going to add more onto that as we oh, continue shit. on. That's going to put into perspective how big this movie is worldwide. But Another actor who received the Hurricane Billy treatment on set was none other than Jason Miller, who plays the role of Father Karras. Um, he hasn't had a huge career in acting, and unfortunately he's now passed away. Um, but he was also in uh, The Ninth Configuration, which was directed by William Peter Blatty. He was in Rudy, and uh, he reprised his role, uh, kind of, in Exorcist Three. 
Uh, Miller gives a memorable performance, and in many ways, he's the anchor of the film, and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost out to John Hausman for The Paper Chase. Now, we're starting to see a trend here. It's it's a shame that he hasn't had a bigger career, but unfortunately, he was typecast after The Exorcist, and he played Priest in a few films, including uh, Home of Our Own in 1975, like right afterwards. Um... Whether or not it's meant in jest, but or not, many people, many people from the film blamed their career floundering because of the supposed curse on the film. Jason Miller had this to say about the strange interactions he had while filming. When I was filming, I would go to this little restaurant, which was in the Jesuit chorus, and this very old priest handed me this little medal of the Blessed Virgin. He said, "You know why I'm giving this to you." I said, why? It's about intervention. You Do you understand the concept of intervention? I said, no. He said, it's a Gnostic concept that comes out of the 15th century, that if you're doing anything on the devil, anything at all to reveal him as the trickster that he is, he will seek retribution against you. Or and he boy will, fucking did he. And we're, gonna, we're definitely going to okay. be unfolding that. He will try and stop you <coughs> what you're trying to do. This metal will protect you. Maybe... Three days, three days later, the Jesuit estates, they have all these side rooms, little sitting rooms, maybe four or five. When you walk down the hall, and I walk by, and out of the periphery of my eye, I see a casket, and I walk back, and I look in the room, and there's this old priest in a casket, dead. Holy shit. Death and destruction were all too prevalent on the set of The Exorcist. Ellen Burson had this to say about the quote-unquote curse of the film. The set caught fire one weekend when no one was there. During the course of the film, there were nine deaths, which is an enormous amount of deaths connected with the film. Some very discreetly, like the actor Jack McGowan, who completed shooting on the film and then died. Max von Sydow's brother died. The assistant cameraman's wife had a baby, and during the shoot, the baby died. The man who refrigerated the set died, and the young night watchman. So... There are a handful of films throughout history, you know, The Omen, uh, Poltergeist, and and this film that have this living legend that continues on to this day about the curse associated with them. So, in just in broader terms, you have a lot of death and destruction on this movie, probably more so than any of the other ones. Is this film cursed? <sighs> okay. I have two takes on this. The cynical old man. I saw this movie at a very young age. We're going to get to my story about how I saw it. Later on in life, I went to church school through 8th grade. Around 7th or 8th grade, I'm more of a cinephile snob. I went through only a phase of like classic cinema, like a Hitchcock and shit like that. And I, that's when I started to learn about this story. And that's when they're still, even though I'm, I am fairly agnostic. I'm agnostic. But at the time, the, the seeds of agnosticism were set in my head. But I'm still going to church school every day. Seventh-day Adventist church school. One of these days, the end times are coming. The world's going to end. Satan's coming. So I started to read about exorcism. I started to you know read more on the devil. And like it, it started to lend a gravitas to this movie. Like, oh my God, maybe Satan did try to stop this movie. You know, and I'm wrong. I don't agree with that. 
and I even came to that conclusion then. But fuck, this movie was just plagued with shit. The sheer numbers, I mean, all in a mathematical terms, almost add up to something exterior. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's it's astronomical, the, the, the probability that so many people would die. Now, um, I'm jumping ahead, but uh, there was a, I don't have the exact quote, but um, Max von Sydow actually said, the longer you film the movie, the more likely these things are to occur. Now, this film had a long, you know, production, like, you know, actual production, yeah. not post-production and all that. So... Can you chalk that up to that? Or, I mean, I don't know. I will right now, as a 39-year-old man, say it was a series of unfortunate events. Not like the book. I just realized that's a series of kids' books. Lemony Snickets. Lemony Snickets. The Netflix show's great, by the way. Anyway, no, it, it is coincidental and unfortunate. I don't believe there was some supernatural... Uh, entity behind it, but growing up watching this movie, okay. from the time I first saw it to years later, seeing it again and again, feeling that, no, this movie is, there is something evil behind it, honestly lends its mystique to me. It's probably my third favorite horror movie of all okay, time. Okay, exactly what you said right there. If you take, if you take the curse away, is this movie... The worldwide phenomenon continue on, continuing on beyond its initial run. Like, does it have the same mystique to people? Are are people attracted to the I'm gonna idea say, that it's cursed? I'm going to say this about this movie. This movie is a solid fucking movie. This is a goddamn plutonium brick of a movie. <laughs> so there's twelve percent. I almost said fifteen. Twelve percent of all the unfortunate shit. That adds to the mistake and might carry it a little bit. This movie sits just fucking fine on its own. Like, if you see it and are actively watching it, it still hits like a motherfucker. I, I agree you with You add you. like 12% of that to like later on and the mystique and all that. But like this, we didn't have social media back then when it came out. Yeah, but it was, it was a type of thing. a little that, bit of it, but mostly the movie stood on its own legs at first. But, to okay, show but, you. but to counter that, like, but this is the type of movie that like you would talk about on the, you know, the, the, in gym class, like in between playing dodgeball. Oh, yeah. Like, Oh, Did man. you hear that? You know, so and so. Yeah, I mean that to me, like that's that's probably how I heard about this movie. So I can't discount the the aura of the. I won't discount. Like I said, fifteen percent of what gave it legs, fifteen to twenty tops. But that would any more than that, I think, would be taken away from the actual craftsmanship of the movie. Do you see what I mean? No, like I, it's an no. effective fucking movie. I I agree with you, but here this is, I don't even want to I don't even want to argue with you because you're right. But how many great like constructed technical films are there that don't have this same? That's true. That, that I I agree with you on that. Like I said. It's a, it's a part of it. It's a it's a it's a substantial. part. It's a hell of a marketing thing. If oh, nothing else. Yeah. So yeah. if the, if the fires and death weren't enough uh, to keep Jason and Miller on the edge, then Hurricane Billy went above and beyond to achieve just that. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but uh, one of his tools in motivating his actors is that he would just shoot guns on set. Yeah, I've heard about that one. So. <laughs> 
there's this there's this great scene where you know Karis is in his apartment and he's sitting and then like the phone rings and I guess you know the the actual sound of the phone is not there but he shoots the gun off to get his attention and his reaction is so fucking visceral and like uh that you that you you believe that like that he's scared out of his fucking pants because he is. Yeah. And this led to very nearly <coughs> them coming to blows. Like, I mean, in a physical sense, he's like, if you ever do that shit again, like I'm going to walk off set and that'll be, you'll be lucky if that's all that happens. Otherwise I'm going to beat the dog shit out of you. So that's just adding again, another layer of the horrible in context scenario that these Actors had to go through. This is one thing I love about the 70s. You had directors like William Freakin and Sam Peckinpah that were fucking psychopaths. That got what they needed to get out of their their actors. Like, I've read some of the the behind-the-scenes stories of um, Straw Dogs. Great movie, by the way. Great movie, the original, not the remake. Fuck the remake. But uh, and that's one time I'll agree with Brandon doesn't want to watch uh, Sam Peckinpah that made the Sam Peckinpah made the original Straw Dogs. I think James Marston's in there. That poor guy. Oh, He's fuck. a great actor, never in good oh, movies. Oh, fuck. No, that remake is terrible. No, it no, really no, is. Nobody's... Oh, so you watched it? I did see it, yeah. Instead of Evil Dead? <sighs> fuck you. I didn't grow up in the town that was that made Straw Dogs. God and damn, I did. Some... It came out the year. Anyway, we'll move on. Like This is one of the things about this movie I think it lends to it. Uh, this was the, the renegade director Decade, 70s, you know, you had fucking psychopaths like Peckinpah, Friedkin, and then like the weird kids like, and I, I'm not a Star Wars nerd, but, um. Oh, George Lucas. George Lucas was a the weird kid. Like, he's like, hey, we're going to do this shit. And then you had Steven Spielberg saying, oh, let's take a B-movie and fucking and take it, it seriously. And yeah. So this was an exciting time. I said directors were fucking full of themselves, it's, so who's like, yeah, I'll pop off a, I'll pop a cap in the air while there's it's, a phone switch It's ring. why I hold the 70s as the greatest era of film, me personally. If you go overall film, I'll agree. If you go horror movie, we're going to debate about okay, it. Okay, I mean, I, on, on that front, I, I think there's definitely uh, sheer volume in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm it's, not going to... It's gonna, hard to yeah. argue. It's hard to argue, but quality... Artistic merit? No. Yeah. But... Visceral love, yes. Okay, one thing that thankfully Jason Miller didn't need motivating to achieve was his death scene because in his place was a stuntman. we got to talk about those ominous steps in Georgetown. I have got to visit them once, honestly, on a church school fucking field trip, and it was great. That's actually kind of cool. Um, we went all over the George, uh, the D.C. area. My pastor at the time, Pastor Baldwin, he's not going to listen to this, so he doesn't care. His parents were lobbyists, and his sister and brother-in-law were lobbyists. So we got to stay, the boys got to stay at the parents' guest house right across from Washington's Orchard. The girls got to stay at his sister and brother-in-law's guest house. And I mean guest house, you know, in there. And we got to go all over but we were, the day I got to see it, we were with my church school teacher's husband. And he's like, hey, man, the steps from the exorcist are out there. He wants to go. I'm like, me. That's that's so awesome. I didn't I didn't know that. I mean, we've been friends great. for 20 yeah. years. I had no idea that you've been there. Um, so the way they achieved this, and this is just old school stunt work, is they put small pads on each one of the steps. And the stunt man just literally Fucking fell down. Fucking do it. Yeah. And um, when, <coughs> when asking... How you know he achieved this? Um, he stated, and I don't have the name of the ex, uh, the uh, 
stuntman. The stuntman. But he said you just go into a zen state. Like, basically, non-resistance. You just go limp and you fall down. That's why drunk drivers are, are often less hurt in a car. Yeah, because they're relaxed. So, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, tensing up, you know, you're, you're more likely to break bones. And, you know, of all the stunts, like, I, I don't think this one gets as much credit as it deserves. Because, I mean, those steps are, they're really shallow. And it's a, it's a fucking it is a super steep, steep long dog. thing. And I was, like, honestly going to see it in person let's see this was i'm trying to think seventh grade because our eighth grade we went to chicago so sixth or seventh grade so i'm still fairly young still com- religiously conflicted so this movie's even deeper like oh god this is real transgression seeing those scares fucked me up until uh, my teacher's husband, Steve Heath, bless his heart, took like a funny pose falling down the stairs, and that actually kind of relaxed me. <laughs> he was a truck driver. He's a cool dude. He's a cool dude. Uh, but yeah, like those stairs are fucking, I couldn't imagine it. Because the, the amount of padding they could put, it's like probably what, quarter, half an inch? Quarter, quarter inch, inch, half an inch, yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever told, told this story on the podcast, but I guess now is a good uh, as good a time as any. Um, I can't tell you exactly how many years. Maybe three or four years ago. Um, I took a tumble down some concrete steps and, uh, it was, it was raining and just were over time, like concrete will kind of divot because yeah. of, you know, like traffic, or, you know, traffic or walking or just being eroded by water. Uh, there was a little bit of standing water and my feet just came out from under me and my head hit the, like the handrail. And Ooh. I, I've had long lasting effects because of this. This is actually one of the, the genesis of how this podcast came to be is sort of a therapy for speaking. I really didn't know this. This is uh, all new to it's, me it's too. It's stuff I've kept close to the vest, but you know, I'm, I'm willing to talk about it now because it's kind of, you know, yesterday's news, but those steps didn't scare me then, but they scared the shit out of me now. I see that. Going, yeah. Going up small steps now, like make me feel super paranoid because of this, because I mean, the steps I went down, was like five or six steps and that's all it took to like fuck my world up. So, you know, and you know, 15, 16 steps, you know, that are super shallow. Like, I don't think I could be honest with you now. I don't think I could do it. I think I would get just a panic attack and would not be able to go them up and down like at all. Uh, so that's, that's just my perspective. I have faith in Brandon that if me and him went there together, we could walk up those stairs just fine. Because uh, I'd shame I, him horribly. I would, I would definitely love to go visit them. I just don't know that <laughs> yeah. I would be able to walk No, I like honestly, this story is news to me. And uh, But no, those stairs, like without having a horrific experience going downstairs, are fucking ominous. Uh, you know... Um, our other priest uh, is a Hollywood legend, and we're, we're saddened by his recent passing. Although he made it to ninety-one, I mean, he had a good run, so I'm I'm bummed. I won't go as far as saddened. Yeah, if I can make it to ninety-one, don't be sad for fucking me. Drink a beer to me, like yeah, he did fucking awesome. He, he incredible actor. I mean, one of the stalwarts. Very, very much old Hollywood, but he but he had a career that transcended and went all on through it. all. And decades. I do want to say. And I know Brandon's probably saving this for later. I'm probably jumping the gun. The makeup artist on this movie could, had a fucking crystal ball. Because he aged up Max von Sydow perfectly to what he'd match up with at that uh, approximate age. Trust me, we're going to talk quite a bit about the great Dick Smith. But first, let's give the rundown for Max von Sydow, who plays Father Marin, one of the 
old stalwarts of just old Hollywood. Um, he was in Emar Berman's The Seventh Seal. You actually referenced it. A I use earlier. it as a pretentious movie people talk about. But I hate to say this. I love that movie. It's a great fucking movie. Um, the greatest thing that this movie uh, accomplished was. Was yes, it, it gave us William Sadler in, yes. in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. It did. So um, he was also Jesus in the greatest story ever told. And, I grew and, up watching that shit all the fucking time. Um, he's the he plays a very convincing Jesus. Um, three uh, Three Days of the Condor, uh, yes. uh, a film that uh, a lot of people probably are more familiar with now than uh, of them talking about the generation we're currently yeah. in. Probably more familiar with now because of uh, the great Captain America Winter Soldier because all of a sudden people are like, oh fuck, there were all these great political thrillers back in the 70s. we got to yeah. check this out. Uh, he was also in um, Flash Gordon. He was Ming the Merciless. Ming that, the Merciless. Not a great movie, but definitely a cult classic. Great performance. Great performance. By him. He yes. knew he he knew exactly what the fuck he was in, and he handed it the fuck up. Uh, he was in uh, Conan the Barbarian, the original with Arnold Schwarzenegger. One of the greatest movies ever. Um, what is great? What is best in life, Conan? To crush your enemies, to see them driven before you, to hear the lamentation of the women. That's my mantra. I won't fuss at him for not watching that remake, but I think he has. I, I ended up... That's I ended not up, bad. I ended up seeing it uh, to way too much CGI. Yeah. Um, he was Blofeld in the unofficial James Bond film, Never Say Never Again, with Sean Connery, uh, who has a video game battle. <sighs> a lot, yeah. I got a lot to say about that movie. We're, we'll That's save a that whole for, other podcast. We'll save that That's a special episode. Uh, he was in David Lynch's Dune, which is... It's a good damn it. Like it's David Lynch shouldn't have been helmed to do a blockbuster, but for what he did, I fucking loved it. It's it's there's good things in it. Now but it's that, Alan it's, Smithy. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. We're 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 in the midst of having a new. I can't a, a wait for version. Denny Villeneuve's Denny Villeneuve. Uh, Villeneuve, I believe his name. Yeah, he did a Blade Runner and yeah, he did a, Arrival. Arrival. Both, Great movies. Like yeah, and Dune is one of my favorite movies ever, but. Uh, that just speaking of his performance in that movie, a lot of the things David Lynch got right were the small details of the books. And Liette Kynes, who he plays, like I can't read that book now. I've read the book dozens of times. Max von Sydow's who I picture in my head. Shit, fuck, I mean his his voice. How do you not associate with exactly? Uh, like once once he reads for a character, that character it's is his forever. And speaking of his voice. The greatest role he ever played. The role of the voice of Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2. You just got busted too. Sorrow of Valdavia commands you to watch that fucking movie. It's underrated. The first one's the best. The second one's still great. Fuck all y'all. On the mountain of skulls and the castle of pain, I sat on a throne of blood. What was shall be, what is shall be no more. Now is the season of evil. Bring me a child that, that I, I might live, live again. again. Fucking great. I heard that guy, the first time I heard the the physical actor, his voice was in, in the oh. Mouth of Madness. And I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, that, that is another entire podcast. I love that movie. Uh, if you ever do that well, movie, I'm... Oh, no, I would love to do that. I'm talking about specifically oh, yeah, William von Homburg, who was a boxer and wrestler in like the 50s, who was just an awful human being who somehow made a career in I acting. Know that. And he died, and a lot of people rejoiced because evidently he was a really shitty human oh, I being. I didn't know that at all. I just knew that he did not sound like, like I saw it in the Mouth of Madness at the theater. And I'm like, that doesn't sound like Vigo. And then I did the fucking looked in the credits. 
Anyway, Max von Sydow, RIP. Let's move Before we get into the specifics about his portrayal as Father Merritt, I want to talk about some of the thematic elements in the film that were going on in the world at the time. We're in the middle of the Vietnam War, and the counterculture movement of the 1960s had shifted. The nuclear family viewpoint, pie in the sky of America, it's, it's kind of going by the wayside. There is still... Social upheaval and economic disparity. In a metaphorical way, it's almost like the the devil is on the loose. Exactly. So, I want to talk about how when we have these horrible times, social uh, social economically, it breeds really good art. Yeah. Um, when you when you look at like especially like the eighties, you know the Reagan era, you you have a lot of economic disparity and then like we have this boom of films that are dealing with like awful subject matters in like the 60s and 70s it's the same thing you have these films that are really shaking uh, up the idea that we live in a a perfect world and I don't want to shit on America because America fuck, fuck every other country America is the greatest country in the world and if you're listening from outside the country I'm so sorry we love you but we love you but America is no your healthcare one. system is better probably it, maybe that's, maybe that's that's very possible no like but it doesn't mean that we live in like a snow globe and it's a perfectly utopian no. world and there there are a lot of problems that we still face to this day but especially during that time you had a movement for the youth is coming up and they're like this is bullshit generational um upheavals and societal like shit was shifting from the old guard to the new guard everything was in upheaval and i think that's why like i'm gonna backtrack on my argument cinematically the 70s was a better time for cinema in general the 80s again i love horror movies in the 80s better the 80s had some economic depressions and times and and things like that that's why there were still okay stuff i'm gonna i always shit on brandon for his grandpa horror movie themes <laughs> the 90s were a pretty smooth fucking sailing oh they were they were that's and, why and, and even that's though why we they're... disagree on scream i think the original scream for sound was revolutionary not it's in my top 20 favorite horror oh, movies. fuck you. Come on. 20. Come on. Give me 20. 50. Come on. 20. 50. No. The Stu and Billy thing at the end was a good twist. Oh, and Wes Craven was a master. But uh, And Nev Campbell is super fucking hot. Now, we'll I will both, fight you on that. Uh, Courtney Cox is hotter, but we'll give you that. I'm going to let it go. We're not going to argue that point. But anyway, I digress. The 90s didn't have as times of upheaval... I can't wait to see what movies come out in the next couple of years because right now we're living in the fucking end times. <laughs> I'm thinking zombies for April. We're li- we're doing this right now on what March 22nd, uh, something like that. Something like that. We're doing this right in the middle of the COVID 19 thing, which I did the proper thing and I sterilized with hundred proof vodka. As did Brandon. We're not in a group of over ten, and you know we're not fucking crazy people freaking out. Yeah, and we're gonna go looting after this. So we are. Fun. Although I did go use, I did go piss in Brandon's bathroom. Like, man, he's got a lot of toilet paper. I'm probably gonna knock him out. I don't have a lot of toilet paper. I, I live a, with four I, women. I have an adequate amount. He of He does toilet have paper. an adequate amount for but one person. I have three teenage girls, a grown woman, my niece, and two kids. I'm gonna murder him for his toilet paper when we're done recording. Uh, one, uh, one, of, one of the things that's interesting thematically about the movie is the generational gap between Father Marin and Father Karras. Um, if indeed the story is about a reaffirmation of faith, I think there's something to be said for Father Karras' sacrifice towards the end of the film. 
where, you know, it's sort of like the old guard being taken over by the new guard. And you kind of touched on it a little bit, but it's not really spelled out in this way. But this is a movie about archaic practices coming back into into view but having to be utilized by in a modern time with a new generation yeah i talked to brandon about this before again this movie fun okay i'm gonna tell the story how i saw this movie real quick please do i was in second grade i had pneumonia a lot growing up Um, my parents worked so my grandmother nileen came and watched me my parents set me up in a very cozy bed in their big king-size bed where we lived and they asked anthony what kind of movie do you want i'm like i want a scary movie they were to me godzilla 1984 <laughs> but my older siblings from my dad's marriage for a little kid that's that probably for scary. a kid that's a that's honestly age appropriate but i was such a dick i'm like what the hell i'd, I'd probably enjoy it now more than i did then i love godzilla anyway i digress they had rented two other movies that weekend because my uh, older brother came with The Exorcist and Full Metal Jacket. My grandmother, bless her heart, she brought me my food, checked on me, and then left me be. So I'm like, I'm going to watch this scary movie. Hee hee hee, oh, it's going to be fun. I watched The Exorcist. Again, we go to church, a Seventh-day Adventist, every Saturday. Heard it all my life. The world's going to end. Satan's going to I was fucking scared beyond the capacity for speech. If I could have talked, I would have called for my grandma, but I couldn't. Like the first time she starts speaking in those voices or when her head fucking spins around, do you know what she did, your cunting daughter? I'm gone. (laughs) I'm literally eight years old, but just old enough to get all the shit. Freaking the fuck out. I'm going to hell for watching this, everything. Okay, well... Daddy got a war movie. I never called him Daddy. Dad got a war movie. I'll watch this. So the next movie I followed up with was Full Fucking Metal Jacket. And I, honestly, when when our our early Ernie's like cussing people, that's funny. But then when the dude blows his brains out and all the Vietnam shit, Private Pile, Private Pile, fuck me up even more. Finally, by the end of the day, before my parents are home, I put on Godzilla 1984, and it was a soothing balm I needed. <laughs> To kind of put a band-aid on the mental scars I'd give myself permanently. But The Exorcist to this day, even though now I watch it, I love it. I, you know, every horror movie, a horror movie fan wants that experience of raw, visceral physical. They'll never get. I'll never get what The Exorcist you're, gave me. You're chasing time. the dragon, man. You're ch- it's like heroin. Let's go do heroin after this. Uh, but, uh, you no. got it, dude. <laughs> we're we're going to do it. But, uh... You, I just thought of we're gonna go we're, we're gonna go looting. We're gonna go looting new heroin. Uh, <laughs> we love y'all. But anyway, no, like this movie in a religious sense. If you grew up with any kind of religious background, should have fucked you up. Um, if Father Marin's time on screen is limited, but he commands every scene that he's in. The actual exorcism in the film is is so tense. Uh, but my favorite moment in the version you've never seen, yeah. and if you're not clear on that, there's the theatrical version, and there was the version in 2000 where they added in back some scenes and then digitally added in so a couple of yeah. things here or there. Um, but uh, Marin and Karis are sitting on the steps, and they're exhausted from trying to drive the demon from Reagan. And the theatrical cut, it just simply just the shot of them sitting there, like exhausted. And either version works, but the, the shot of them 
in the, the version you've never seen, it continues on and they have a little bit of dialogue. And the dialogue is about the horrible situation making them lose faith in humanity and if if the if god exists that he he couldn't love us possibly because this is going on like that's why they're they're made to suffer that's heavy writing now it, you went to church school i want you to put that into perspective right. of, of how you would view that as as a child we're actually bringing that back to the point i tried to make before how i saw this my background and i did read non-fiction again huge air quotes on exorcism and practices uh around late middle school early high school like at the end when he's like take me take me that is ultimately the goal of the exorcist. Of the exorcist, in in Catholic canon, is to try to pull the demon toward them, and then they can expel it from there. Because only God, because God originally gave His twelve disciples the ability to exorcise demons, because He could just say it and it happened, because He's the Son of God. They could pretty much do the same thing, but it got diluted. Again, I'm using a lot of air quotes. Y'all can't see. <laughs> And I might not be 100% right, but according to the books I read is what I'm quoting from. So, you know, later on, exorcists, they have God backing them, but they need to get it out and draw it to them and so they can express it. Karis's lapse of faith, but ultimate of affirmation of faith by jumping out the window is why he takes him and Pazuzu it- takes Karis. He jumps out to save Re- Reagan. You know, because he doesn't have the full faith to just bounce it back off that uh, Marin would have had or had previously in the two future prequels. Uh, well, I mean, he's he is an elderly man. He's an elderly man. And again, it's he about has... shaking your faith in humanity. And again, having read the sequel to The Exorcist that William Peter Blatty wrote, The End That I Hate, gets very heavily into that. Uh, you know, that his kind of take on it is this is this is hell now. This is separation from God now and after we die we go back. Uh it's a whole big thing. But no, watching that at the time, I I like and when it came out in the version you've never seen with my background, every year in church school, starting from first grade on, we had to read the Bible cover to cover. We had verse Bible verse to read today. I'm very familiar with religious dogma. Not necessarily Catholic dogma, but religious dogma. That's why, again, so viscerally upset me, upset me at the time. But I mean, honestly, when you look at it from that, Satan's breaking you down. And again, at the time, it's super hardcore. The end of the day, this movie is a reaffirmation of faith and old values. I think hey, you're you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, th- this scene is so profound and scarier than anything. I've seen it in any other movie, and I, I'm not saying that lightly. I, there's just something about these moments that feel so real to life that you can't discount them as just being, you know, uh, it's just cinema. Yeah. You turn it on and turn it off, and exactly. that's 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 that. I feel like modern audiences are so conditioned for jump scares and, and having cell phones constantly in their hands that it only hurts. That. They don't. They don't allow the slow burn to really take them in. So we kind of touched on this a little earlier, but there's active and passive viewing. Um, 
actively viewing this film, and especially if you put it in the context of, like, you're viewing the real-life horror that these people are undertaking, it's going to affect you a lot more than, like, just, you know, viewing it for entertainment. Through the real-life lens of a priest who's having a crisis of faith, dealing with the recent death of his mother, and I'm not trying to bring this back to me. That's one reason I was kind of afraid to do this, but I'm okay with it. Like, he doesn't know... He's having a crisis of faith right now in the in the yeah. world of the movie dealing with his mother that the demon takes advantage of horrifically. Um, and again, that's why I think it is an affirmation of faith and him giving his life is Christ-like. Again, air quotes. But you can't absorb any of this if you're listening in the background, scrolling fucking Facebook. That's why I was telling him, when I watch a movie, I take my kids to fucking cell If I'm watching a movie I want my kids to fucking watch, I take their cell phones. Uh, you know, I should hit them more, too. That's probably... <laughs> but I don't, because I'm weak. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's always tomorrow. There, You're right. If the world doesn't end tomorrow... If the world it? doesn't end tomorrow. Uh, no matter... If you view this film passively or, or actively, you have to bend a knee to Father Marin's makeup. You touched on this a little earlier. Now, before we talk about the legendary Dick Smith and his groundbreaking special effects career, we have to talk about transforming a 40-something Max von Sydow into an elderly man. How old were you when you realized this was even a makeup job? Early high school. I saw the movie again, like I said, in like late second grade. It was I had like summer pneumonia or like late, you know, spring pneumonia. Like I said, I missed school, but it was almost over. I watched the movie, didn't even think about it then. Just got my fucking world wreck and my whole life course altered by the horror of that movie. And watched it again and again, and I'm like, wait a second, man. And I can't remember what I'd just seen. I th- was he not in Minority Report? He was in Minority I Report. I think it was Minority Report that I'm like, you know... I'm the first time thinking about this. He hasn't, he, he hasn't aged. He hasn't aged a day in like 30 years. That's not right. So yeah, that's when like Minority Report. Um, it was around it was around 2000. I think I was maybe 15 or 16 years old when it got released in theaters again. And I'm kind of dipping my toe into like uh, viewing film beyond just like popcorn stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like enjoying like the how what things brings it together. are what brings together how th- films are made. The the deep dive. And I had found this book in school library. The high school that you and I both went to, oddly enough, had this book about movie making. And I read this passage about Dick Smith. And I and I'll be honest with you, I had never heard the name Dick Smith. Uh, the the big name from our childhood was Tom Savini. Tom Savini and, uh, and Rick Baker, Baker. and uh, they all bend the knee to, to the master. But after realizing this, I'm like, oh my god! So instantly, uh, and this is this is post the version you've never seen yeah. when it came out on DVD, or at that time actually may have been VHS. I'm having I got it on DVD right when it came out. So it was probably it was right there at the edge where VHS and DVD were. Yeah, like, I, I can't remember which version, but either either or, I watched it. Almost like for the first time again. It was like a completely different experience. And I had so much more of a fulfilling viewership of the film knowing that this is maybe the greatest makeup effect ever done in a movie. So I I pose that question to you. Is this the most convincing makeup effect ever done in a movie? Uh, Okay, movie? I'm about to have a very embarrassing answer. Because I'm willing to accept... White girls. The Wayans girls. (laughs) No. Um... 
No, and a movie. Like I said, like I watched uh, Minority Report or something like that, Max von Sydow, and like, holy shit, that movie was done in like early 70s. That was makeup. And that like literally hit me. Whatever I saw him in, I'm, I'm almost positive Minority Report. And I'm still going to say it's the best, but I'm going to preface this. I watched with my the love of my life, Sarah, a show on network, but we watch on Hulu called This Is Us. And they have Mandy Moore in like senior makeup. And honestly, it's amazing. Okay, well, I I have not seen this, so I'm going to go ahead and you say You can shame you're, me. You're wrong. I'm wrong, and I'm horrible. <laughs> Just like you should admit you're wrong about Evil Dead remake, and we should watch it tonight, uh, because my mom died, and if you were my friend, you'd watch it with me. Fuck, man, why you going to throw that on me? That's yes! Horrible. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> I told him i go dark when that happened, so... <laughs> Uh, that's, I love that's, you, Brandon. That's ninety percent of our friendship. I probably probably ninety nine percent. We couldn't put most of our friendship on record, recording because you know uh, we, we don't want that out there. Be deplatformed so quickly. Uh, the wiz- the makeup wizardry used by to make Max von Sydow look like an elderly man was just one of the amazing, one of the many amazing effects uh, in The Exorcist by the legendary Dick Smith, aka the Godfather of makeup. Um, he's done so many things. Uh, We'll just uh, do it in a bridge version. Uh, Godfather 1 and 2, The Stepford Wives, Taxi Driver, Marathon Man, The Deer Hunter, one of my all-time favorite films. Uh, Altered 70s. States, uh, Ghost Story, which is literally right behind. Ghost Story has one of my favorite jump scares of all time. When he's in the bathtub rubbing his foot on her boob, and she goes <laughs> underwater and shoots up, that fucked me up. Oh, that's good stuff. It is literally right behind you where you're sitting. It really is. Yeah, that's a great, great book, too. Great, great stuff. Uh, countless others. Uh, Dick is cited as being the inspiration and standard bearer uh, by every great makeup artist that followed, including Tom Savini, Michael Westmore, Greg Nicotero, Rick Baker, and on down the line. Uh, beyond the obvious quality of his work, the question is why is he so reserved um, and so uh, revered, rather, uh, in the television and film industry. Uh, quite frankly, he was an innovator. Uh, Dick was uh, TV's first important makeup artist, serving as the makeup director for NBC for 14 years. During this time and over his career, he developed many new materials and uh, pioneered techniques in the use of foam latex. In layman's terms, he invented he invented modern makeup effects, and. There were greats before him, Jack Pierce and so on and so forth, but he was the first one that, I guess, modernized these things to be able to be done in a quick manner, quick and convincing manner. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, back then, there was no Oscar for special effects or makeup effects, uh, but when the category was instituted, uh, it was only fitting that the first recipient was Dick's protege, Rick Baker. Uh, Baker, Baker finally got to return the favor to his mentor in 2011 when he presented Dick his Oscar for long overdue lifetime achievement. Yeah, it was just a special Oscar. Like, hey, you know, I mean, you you earned it. You're hey, one of the best. Should have given two. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, he deserved many more than oh, that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, that should have had that category existed back then. There's dude, nobody he would have been the Meryl Streep. Yeah, just always. Oh, literally up until <laughs> up until uh, American Werewolf in London. Like, I mean, it would have been. It and that was been his him. protege. It was like... him, Rick Baker. Yes, uh, I, I'm glad he f- was finally recognized uh, on such a grand stage for his contributions. Uh, and by all accounts, Dick was really well liked by many of the people he worked with over his career. 
Uh, that doesn't mean he's not without his controversies. Uh, reportedly, no, I, I don't know this 100% sure. This is just things that uh, a lot of people around him have said. But he was very outspoken for his disdain for females in the field of special effects work. Just we're, like Walt Disney. We're going we're gonna to chalk that one up to him being old and from another time. Yes. And we'll just... We'll move on from that. Now, although I believe his makeup on Max von Sydow is the standout of The Exorcist, his most well-known creation is that of the person we're about to spotlight, Linda Blair, in the role of Reagan McNeil. Uh, I gotta stop right now. I'm gonna say this right here, and I know we're about to get into other stand-ins and stuff like that, is the best underage performance by Anybody in a dramatic movie. Fuck you, kid from Sixth Sense, whose name I can't... Haley Joel Haley, Osmond. Haley Joel Osmond. Fuck you. <laughs> Although I love you in anything you do now, because you're always hilarious. And he's fat, so good for him. <laughs> I, I appreciate you not being uh, conforming to uh, Damn beauty, right. beauty standards of Hollywood. Um, uh, Linda Blair was in Hell Night, really good uh, slasher movie oh, from yeah. like, the early 80s. Um, Chained Heat, which, oh my oh god. Oh my god. Prison movies with My boobies. right arm is like 3% <laughs> of its mass is from that movie. Uh, she was also in Savage Streets. Uh, Return to the Horror genre with Grotesque is a little known, but uh, has a good cult following. Horror Are you going to get Night Patrol in there? I, I didn't have it on my list, but if you want to... She played... It was a it was a parody type comedy movie in the early 80s where she said... Where she played uh, Officer Superman, and <laughs> so uh, stupid, and it oh, it's so dumb, but it's great. And anybody, the little oh man, if you knew who I was talking about, there was a little uh, little person as the chief. I don't want any of that crap tonight. And anytime he said crap tonight, she go oh don't. It was the dumbest thing ever, but it was great. And she showed her tits in it. So uh, any movie she showed her tits in, I am all on board. Let's watch that tonight. Afterwards, I'm serious. <laughs> Um, she reprised her role in The Exorcist Part 2, the list uh, least said about the movie, the best. <laughs> and again, albeit in a spoofing manner, in Repossessed. I love that movie. Although, I'm sorry, the devil would not hate rock and roll. The devil, they get rid of him singing Devil in a Blue Dress. Devil in a Blue Dress, Blue Dress, Blue Dress. It's one of my favorite non-Frank uh, Drebin roles Leslie Nielsen ever did. It's one of the... It, it's not a good movie. I don't it's want, not a good I, movie, I don't want to no. misrepresent it, but I, I love that. I love that movie. It's... it's it, uh, you right like around those kind ass. of movies. Right behind you, it's around your ass somewhere. Uh, if you like those kind of movies and, then, and grew up in that time, you'd appreciate it. Watching it now through a Gen Zer's eyes, no, it's going to be painful. Well, most importantly, uh, she did a guest appearance on Extreme Ghostbusters in 1997. You just got busted again! Yes! Now, Linda was only 14 years old when they were filming The Exorcist. So it's so easy to, to lose sight of the fact that she was just a kid and being in a horror movie was probably the last thing on her mind. She had this to say about being cast in the role. I wanted to be a princess. I wanted to be in Disney movies. I wanted to be in Lassie. I wanted to be in Flipper. I didn't want to be a monster. Whether or not... Whoops. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whether or not you find the movie scary, you can't deny it the things that they had her do and say in the role weren't controversial. It's it's 2020 right now, as a time we're recording this. It's still be horrible. And 
child or not, I don't think masturbating with a crucifix would fly at Forcing all. a grown man's face in your bloody crotch. But I want to say this. like Before we go into how great she is in the horrific roles, she's also equally great as the little girl. Oh, hi, Mom. Oh, we're playing with the Ouija board cat. Howdy. Like, innocent little kid role. Like, she is just as convincing in those moments of the film as she is as, oh, my God, I'm possessed and going to, again... Rub a grown man's face and her bloody cross. Lick me, lick me. Fuck me up as a kid. I'm telling you. So, uh, Maybe but, develop some fetishes later on in life, but it fucked me up as a little kid. I won't ask. <laughs> we'll, we'll, uh, we need a few more drinks before I can drag That's that information. That's for the after party afterwards. So, um, we talked a little bit about the ethics of that was utilized to get these performances out of her, but I want to talk about the ethics of just child acting in general, in the exploitative exploitative nature of her role. Yet again, you're a parent, I'm not a parent. If your 14-year-old daughter was cast in a movie and they wanted her to masturbate with a crucifix and, and, and spout profanities, like, would you be fine with this? Okay, here's the thing I'm going to preface. I love you, Evelyn Amelia Sadie. That's not shit like I wouldn't doubt for them joke about anyway. So those three specific people, no. That's fine because they're going to be horrible anyway. Because I love them. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm an impressionable upon them. They love bad humor. Horrific stuff like that. But like, again, somebody else's kid, no. I don't like... Yeah, but the common claim. just The common reg- people? Like, no, it's regular- real fucked up to imagine your kid like viciously jamming a crucifix theatric you know acting wise into their vagina as a thing no i can't imagine it. like oh but you'll get your sad card daughter go do this now just say the mo- your mother sucks cocks in hell. hell you know besides what my stepdaughter's dad say to me every night but uh <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. again sorry dark humor right now but uh no like i could see like it's really hard for me to even want your kids to be in entertainment. Seeing how nine times out of ten, doesn't Amanda Bynes have face tattoos now and is knocked okay. up? It's it's interesting that you bring that up because Nickelodeon was a huge oh, thing in the, yeah. in the 1990s. But it's come out in recent years that a lot of the producers and people who work behind the scenes were fucking pedophiles. And I, we're we're on the uh, the cusp of you know like this information like kind of like boiling to the top. I mean. We talked about him, Harvey Weinstein, yeah. and um, uh, the revelation of Corey Feldman having this documentary where he kind of exposed, or you know, yeah. whether or not it's it's accurate. I'm I don't know. Uh, that Charlie Sheen. There's some dirty. Wait, Charlie Sheen. Evidently, Charlie Sheen uh, raped uh, Corey Feldman, not Corey Feldman, but Corey Haim, and it was one of the reasons that caused his spiral. Uh, uh, while they were filming a uh, Rudy, I want to say. I've never heard that, but you know that's fucking me up. We, it's just it's we live know. in we live in really strange times. I mean, there's sort of, it's sort of like you know there's AD and BC and AD, but then there's almost like pre Epstein and post Epstein, and and yeah. and now in this shit like that wouldn't fly. We yeah, but, but we, back we're, then we're we're in the now where it's almost like if you if you view it through just a broad spectrum. It's almost like it's so common that like, fuck every kid is probably had some form of sexual. uh, Trying to think of like successful child actors and like Ron Howard, Elijah Wood, 
and I can't think of any other I mean, ones who seem normal. There's there's not a ton of them. Like but. there's not, and you have to have a good support group behind you. And obviously, and I love Linda Blair in this role, but her parents were not good parents for letting her take this role. No. Okay. You know, the the negative aspects of being a child actor definitely hit Linda hard. Uh, she was reportedly she had a cocaine habit um and you know she she was arrested with 30 or so other uh, people in a DEA sting and she was ordered to serve 3 years probation pay a $5000 fine and make at least 12 public appearances to speak on the dangers of drugs thankfully thankfully over time uh, she seems to have seemingly Leveled kicked out. all these habits and stuff so she's she probably, worked out her demons in caged heat so. <laughs> pun intended um <laughs> but she's probably recovered more so than some of the other contemporaries oh, yeah. that were just sort of like utilized. Well, dad, like um, fucking uh, Corey uh, Haim is a Corey Haim. Uh, the, the Dana fuck, Plato, the guy who killed himself in the closet. He was in um, David Carradine. No, in uh, excess guy, the It Kid. He was stuttering Bill Dembro in It. The oh fuck, Jonathan Brandis. Yeah, Jonathan Brandis. Like a lot of this, they don't come out of this right at all. Or alive, so yeah. I mean, it's incredibly that, that sad. So I mean, you, I, I, I don't know. Like, if I was in the position where I had kids, like, is, is the success worth the mental drain it takes on these kids? Like, if it was something with vulgar language or something nowadays, personally, my stepkids, I try to get my youngest to cuss. I think it's hilarious. She won't cuss. She just won't. Amelia, just like, I've caught her slipping up when she doesn't think I'm in the room. She'll tell her older sister, shut the fuck up. And I think it's the cutest thing ever. But, like, back then, like, again, like, if somebody else was saying we want her on set in front of 30 people ramming a cross in her crotch, I don't think, and again, I'm not even a biological parent, but just as a step parent, I don't think I'd be cool with that. So I can't imagine. But then again, there's no depth to avarice and greed in Hollywood parents. That's so. true. We've established, at least to some degree, that while working on The Exorcist and in other films, that Linda Blair was exploited. Um, much like Ellen Burstyn was exploited uh, during the injury that she sustained and getting yanked behind. But she's not the only one. Linda Blair was injured on the set, although not to as great a degree as Ellen was, but there's this scene where she's on the bed and she's just slamming back and forth. And you look yes. at this scene, I mean, it's she's on a, she's on a, she's on a, she's on a mattress. Yeah. So how badly should, could she get hurt? Strapping that thing to her back and shoving exactly. her up and down. Exactly. She was in like this harness and I guess it like kind of loosened as it was like slamming her back and forth. So she was coming up as it was coming down and it was slapping her on the back. That Like that sound effect? Yeah. And... She's screaming in pain, and it, it went to a point where, like, she's not acting anymore. She's, like, saying, like, fuck, no, I'm getting hurt. And thankfully they cut, but that's the, that's the cut that's in the movie is yeah. her getting fucked up. The one good thing about this is it was the 70s, and they probably, they probably hooked her up with some cocaine for it. So let's Well, just, <laughs> she ended up on cocaine. <laughs> this is where it started. So, I, I mean, I don't know. It's very, very possible. It's scared, to th- it's scared to think that it's a 12-year-old girl would be, you know, doing eight girl. balls. Okay, she was 14, but she was so playing. So, it's fine, she was playing. She was playing. A t- oh, yeah, she's exactly. She's playing 12, but she's 14. So, you know, it's about 70s <laughs> log. That's like 23. You know, it do, it does the, the ends justify the means? And I'll leave that somewhat for you out there in the I love that movie. No, I'm going to answer that. I love this movie. It is an 
integral part of my horror thing. But no, I don't believe it's ever right to hurt your actors or actresses or kids in a movie. So they don't justify the means, but we're left with the means. Is it bad enough that it should be ignored because of what was done? No, there are certain things like I'm not going to listen to Michael Jackson anymore. Not that I ever really did anyway. But you know, I can like his shit was so horrific. But oh, there, transgressions. I don't, I don't want to get into an argument, but I don't think Michael did it. I really don't. Watch. Have you seen? I have. Neverland? I have. But there, there's so many holes in those people's stories. Yeah, they're buttholes. <laughs> so. <laughs> So we'll just leave that. We'll, I'm just like we'll, we'll do. What we'll I'm do saying moon, is, we'll do Moonwalker and just like we'll there's just a lot of shit movies I love that Harvey Weinstein's name's attached to, but only well, Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby. Like okay, here's a good example. Kevin Spacey fucked up all Kevin Spacey movies for me with his shit and his weird reaction sh- videos to that on YouTube. I can't watch Usual Suspects, which we know you don't like. And whatever. I'll, 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 I'll give you that. Scooby-Doo bullshit. It's Scooby-Doo for grown-ups, and I'll give you that. But this movie, yes, he, he crossed the line, but it was by toes, not steps. It was not good. But it doesn't negate the fact that the sum total of its parts equals something greater. Undeniably... Her performance is so much more mature than any other 14-year-old I've ever seen act before. She essentially plays two different roles in the movie. You know, the the innocent 12-year-old girl full of life, and then the, the demonic Captain Howdy, Pazuzu, Love it. that devil, however you want to categorize her. Um, so, she's conjured by a Ouija board, and for anybody who may... Doubt. I how good this? Are you saying Ouija board or Ouija? It's Ouija. Ouija, Ouija. It's it's pronounced a bunch of different. Sorry. Ways. Um, for for anybody who may doubt how good of a performance Linda gives, you don't have to look very far. For my money, the scenes where she's having these medical tests and psychological tests run on her, they're absolutely that's actually haunting. actually I was going to say that's probably the best acting she does in the movie. Um, and it's, that's 100% her acting, because we'll get into it a little little as we go on, that some of the more uh, demonic aspects were enhanced and may potentially have been played by other people. But those scenes, like I mean, it's like she's being physically tortured. They have her hooked up to that machine, uh, and the, you know, the doctor, and, and fuck, uh, it's, it's hard. That's white-knuckling, like... Not wanting to like get up from your couch and and go to the screen and say just let her go you know like fuck she's she's being she's had enough so I, I anybody that discounts her performance in this movie I, I think they're absolutely seeing the they're not seeing the forest for the trees you know exactly um there is definitely lines being blurred between her performance and. Actual fright. I talked about a little bit about the the harness slamming her back and forth. In this instance, like where it's not even acting anymore, does that discount the performances on your from your perspective? No, because she just said cut, 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 fuck you, fuck you, fuck you immediately, and taking it out of it. No, and again to the visceral impact that the audience views. It's like, okay, I hate to use this word. This is a total 180 in tone and shift, or shift in tone. Lord of the Rings. Viggo Mortensen. They're trying to bury Pippin, kicking the helmet that is not a prop helmet. Collapsing. Ah! That's real pain. That's not acting. But you feel it. 
her shit. You feel it. Alan Burstyn getting pulled back, slamming in. Like, you, like again, you. I say feel, feel, feel all these things. That's what I mean by it's. This is a visceral movie. You you feel it on a deeper level than just with your eyes. Like, oh man, that hurts. Or, oh God, they're doing that. Like you just kind of. It gets under you. That's one of the most effective weapons it has. Well, uh, the flip side to her character is the malevolent Captain Howdy. So, before we get into the the details of that, we have to talk about the Ouija or Ouija or Ouija board. I was obsessed with spirit boards back in the day and I so wanted things to happen but I I just have never found a, a time or instance where they actually worked. I want to believe very much like our X-Files brethren but it's just nothing has ever occurred for me. So uh, my question would be uh, are you a believer? All right, as to a believer in a supernatural element to a uh, board game that kids eight and up can play, no. But there is interesting psychological aspects you could think of, like when multiple people do it. I'm sure every now, you know, a lot of times there's one person on the board doing what they want. But if you truly let people who believe take over, I think there's a subconscious aspect that people get in like a mindset and like, we'll just let things go. But no, I don't believe there's an actual supernatural element behind the Ouija board. I so, so wanted something to fucking happen. And I know people that that are not religious people who are intimidated by playing the Ouija or Ouija board, Ouija, however you want to pronounce it. They're so intimidated by it that they won't even try it. And me being like, I want something to fucking happen. That's the Ghostbuster in me, oh, by yeah, the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I want something to happen. Like, please shift my my viewpoint. Give me something to uh, to, to to rattle against. And I just, I, it's just a game. I, that's, it is just a game. And again, with three teenage stepdaughters, I've seen them. Evelyn uh, has like several Ouija boards, different styles. And they're like, oh, it was saying this or saying that. I'm like... Okay, there. It just sounds like something y'all are, you know. I'll even try. I'll shit on their dreams, you know. <laughs> Fuck them. They need to grow up. I'm like, it's it's either once, a couple times they've done it. I've known for a fact it's one of their bitch friends that's been over there just kind of moving the board around. But other times, like, it might be a subconscious, like, we're going to move our hands and, like, lose ourselves to the fantasy of it. That I don't think people post puberty, like whose brains are fully developed, can get in that mindset anymore. But, you know, I, I wish I could. Oh, I, I do. really, I, I really wish I could. I, 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 and I feel that way just about movies in general. Like they're kind of magical when you're growing up, and then you become, you know, very again cynicistic uh, towards things. Anything. And, uh, and so. nothing matters as much. That's why, again, my theater experience with Hereditary was so enjoyable because it was a very visceral like holy shit it didn't scare me i was never oh god this is real shit that could it didn't have the same effect as me in my parents bed cozied up under a blanket sick watching the exorcist did but it had impact yeah that that goes a long way uh linda's performance is only enhanced by the makeup of dick smith who is actually uh he he did a quite a few test shots 
with many variations on what would have been perfectly fine for any other movie, but they just weren't clicking uh, with the down-to-earth tone that William Freakin was going for, so it was suggested to give her self-inflicted scars as a result of her crucifix masturbation, rather than like an overwrought witch or demonic look. Uh, To me, this is the definitive look of horror. When we're being honest about Linda, has to at least be in part to share this honor with a few other people, including Eileen Dietz, who was kind enough to give us the intro at the top of the podcast. This is hard to talk about, uh, especially now that I've talked with Eileen because she's sort of voiced her, you know, not concerns, but her her viewpoint on things. So I have a different uh, viewing of this now because in my mind, it's, it's Linda doing all these things and, and you tie it in with that makeup and it's just so impactful when you see it but uh, anytime you see the subliminal face of captain howdy that's eileen um but also to a lot of factors including child labor laws eileen was used in place of linda because she was similar in size uh in fact it's believed that up to six different people were used to fill in for linda throughout the movie now normally this wouldn't be a big deal but it seems that the Academy was not informed when they nominated Linda. Now, they couldn't rescind her nomination for Best Supporting Actress, but that on top of the fact that she did not produce the voice, which was um, a Mercedes McCambridge. She's a fucking 14-year-old girl. How the fuck she going to produce that well, voice? Well, I mean... Fuck the Academy. I mean, We've they, gone over that. Once this revelation made its way to the Academy. It was seemingly held against her, and she lost the Oscar to Tatum O'Neill for her role in Paper Moon. Now, oddly enough, Tatum, Tatum was also incredibly young at just 10 years old. So, n- never before have we had two under-20 actors vying for, for the exact same position. Because of losing the Oscar, Linda has held a grudge against Eileen for almost 50 years and going so far that they won't attend the same conventions together. And this is not Eileen, at least what she told me. So could Linda have been a bigger star had she won the Oscar or would she have ended up like a lot of actresses that are like one time Oscar winners winning the Oscar and then having a career slump? I'm going to go with the latter because yes, Linda did a lot of exploitation, sleazy, dumb shit afterwards. But she had a career pretty consistently. Oh, she absolutely did. But had this Oscar win hit, I think at such a young age, I don't know anything about her parents, but they might have been more choosy about the roles and it would have fallen off a lot quicker. She might have even had another really good, serious, dramatic, you know, instead of coming back for The Exorcist 2... Oh, God. And the least we say about John Mormon's The Exorcist The most the disappointing sequel in history, and I will comfortably say that. You you very well may be right. I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that would even rival... Uh, I'm I, not even talking to the quality that, that's, of it, that's a, disappointment. We definitely should do The Exorcist 2 in the future, because it is a really interesting movie uh, aesthetically, <laughs> but it's, it, man, it's a piece of shit narratively. So, so on and so forth. We'll push that to the side. I feel like she could have, she would have had probably better options 
at least for a short time. For a after. short time, like you said. But I, I don't know that she would have had a bigger career. She definitely had the goods to be a really, She's really a great terrific actress. actress. So it is. It, it's a. It's an unfortunate thing that like horror it can be a launching pad for people. But because this was such a high profile movie, I think she plateaued so early that yeah. or peaked rather that it was. It can only go down. Somewhat. Exactly. Again, you're in a movie bigger than fucking Jesus uh, at such a young age. You know. It's it's she'd had one or two really good, probably dramatic, forgotten seventies, eighties movies, and petered out, and maybe had a career resurgence later on in life in middle age instead of consistently working through her hottest years, showing us some titties <laughs> as we needed. You know the 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 if if she had taken the other route and like say she did win the Oscar and everything, you know you know exactly where she would have ended up. Probably in the exact same place. The only difference is she probably would have ended up in a fucking um, movie uh, directed by a fucking blank. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, she'd have had a career resurgence because of Quentin Tarantino and how big of a cinephile he is. I totally agree. Yeah, uh, that's pretty pretty much it. Uh, you know, Hollywood's not an easy place to succeed. You know, talented or otherwise. Linda had this to say about making it in Hollywood. Hollywood is a very difficult place. You may feel that you deserve to be part of it, and sometimes you just don't get that break. It's a hard business, and the word is business. But if you enjoy it, it's a wonderful craft, and if more people go out and do independent films, do things they want to do, they might just find a place for themselves in Hollywood. Despite her feelings that she had a disappointing career post-Exorcist, she never speaks ill of The Exorcist and does a ton of appearances, cons... To this day, I just wish she still has her, a sense of humor about it. You know, you'll see, like she did a whole movie joking about it. Well, at that point, I'm not sure that it was an option. She was, pro- she was probably was, trying to pay bills, but I, I just wish that her and Eileen could mend fences. I want to say this: Brandon told me this before we did this. Eileen kind of was sent some samples of the podcast uh, to kind of get the sense of what we do, and she listened to the Nightmare on Elm Street. Part two episode, which I'm on, and she's like, "Okay, y'all are a real podcast. I will totally be happy to do the intro." And I've never been happier about anything I've ever heard ever. Yeah, that is a, such a nice uh, endorsement. <clears throat> um, let's crack through our additional cast as we're coming to the end of this much longer. This is the you know, this is probably the lo- this will be the longest episode it's, ever. It's definitely going to be coming close, if not the um, longest. One. Okay, if you discount interviews, it'll be the longest episode you've yeah. had. And, uh, but this has, like I've been saying jokingly to Brandon, this has the most meat on the bone. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we have Jack McGowan playing the role of director Burt Dennings. Now, he dies off screen in the film, but shortly after he rapped, he ended up dead. So, it him- was a sacrifice to Satan for the success of the movie. Well, um, I don't, I don't know that it would be, it would have been, uh, in his contract. Uh, to allow such things, but I hope he got paid good for it. Yeah, I mean, somebody somebody should have benefited from that. Um, I what, did. I got to see the movie. That's true. We all benefited as cinephiles. Uh, William O'Malley plays <coughs> the role of Fire Father Dyer. Now, William was also a consultant on the film for the you know accuracy and religious aspects because he was an actual priest. Now, being that you know you you're not a priest, obviously, no. <laughs> but you you had a child. Uh, you grew up in church. A lot school. of religion. 
Is there anything in this film that is glaringly wrong? Okay, see, I, I can't speak to Catholic canon of that because, again, I wasn't raised Catholic as Seventh-day Adventist, but, again, Catholic and, and Adventist, any kind of religion like that, you're deeply embedded in. I didn't see anything glaringly wrong with it. Um, well, evidently, he took on this role uh, in in the in the movie as an advisor and as an actor, which we'll talk, touch on in just a moment, because he had seen Rosemary's Baby and he was like, "Oh my God, I have to do something to yeah to rectify that." And I love Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's love Baby it. is just good fun. Um, but this is granted a little more in actual Catholicism. Um, one quick thing about William is that he, he wasn't an actor like at all. So during the finale of the film, he was supposed to be giving last rites to, uh, in context of the film, his best friend, uh, Father Karras. And he just wasn't giving a performance that, uh, William freaking was happy with. So, enter Hurricane Billy, who slapped the shit out of the man and yelled for action. It worked because not only is he crying, but his hands are trembling from adrenaline in the scene. So, he gets a really good performance out of somebody who's not an actor. Um, go back and watch this scene, and it's pretty evident. Like, he's genuinely shook. So See, I'd heard about both the back injuries. I did not know about that. And I would just love... Some director nowadays to try that in the mainstream, like Taika Waititi smacking the shit out of the little kid in Jojo Rabbit. You'll find out about that later, which you haven't seen that movie. It's an amazing movie. It's it's on my list. I have not seen it. Our good friend Mick Strong gave it a gave it a recommend, so we'll we'll be checking that. I out I wonder eventually. what Mick Strong thinks about Evil Dead remake. I don't, I don't know if he's even fucking seen it. I'll ask him eventually. By the way, Mick's just now getting over some uh, sickness. We were scared there for a while. It was coronavirus, but thankfully. He's, uh, his fever is broken. Get so, well better. Yeah. Get well soon, Mick. Uh, we have uh, Lee Jacob playing the role of Lieutenant Kinderman. Uh, you probably know him best for uh, his role in 12 Angry Men with uh, Henry Fonda. Great movie. Uh, he and the character of Father Dyer, uh, they have some really nice moments together in the film, and they form a friendship over over film. Yep. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you have uh, literary characters that are brought to the silver screen, and their their bond is film, and uh, that's just kind of a cool thing. Now, their uh, their friendship is later explored in Exorcist Three, and to me, that's the one of the heart the heart of the film is just their friendship, yeah. and the whole ordeal is almost second, you know, to that friendship. Yeah, absolutely. The foundation of that movie is, and again, I was telling Brenda earlier that's my favorite George C. George C. Scott role. Uh, hard, hard to argue, but. Uh, I'm gonna get again. I won't. I won't. Go, go I won't fist fight over it. But the change again, change is great too. Uh, we have Kitty Wynn as Sharon, who is a uh, Reagan's tutor and friend to Chris McNeil. Um, Wasn't she, she the one that brought the Ouija board in the movie? She is uh, that whore. She's basically she's, ba- <laughs> she's basically uh, even though like she's her tutor, she's kind of like her surrogate mother and like babysitter, like for, older sister, yeah. kind of like a paid older sister. Uh, she's one of the few people who actually reprises her role. She's in Exorcist too, and I'm sure she probably uh, enjoyed the check. Enjoyed we'll the enjoyed the check that. and probably uh, did not enjoy the uh, the ridicule that came from being in Exorcist Two, the heretic. Um, I'm going to butcher this name, uh, Vesliki Melieros, who plays Karis' mother. And this is, uh, was her first film role. 
she was just uh, she was seen, I think, in a restaurant, and she's like, "Oh my god, you you look like somebody who should be in the movie." A Catholic mom guilt tripping somebody. Like, yeah, I know. Right? Perfect. Yeah, um, her she very little screen time, uh, but effective. Very very effective. Okay, so I don't know about you guys, but my buzz is starting to wear off, so I think we could use a drink. So it's time for us to drink it in, man, Exorcist Edition. So what we're going to do is I'm going to give you all of these tropes, and if you're inclined to watch The Exorcist, which I absolutely encourage you to do, whether this is your first viewing or 100th viewing. Put your fucking phone down. Put your phone down. Um, I want you to take a shot whenever there is a religious reference or symbol is seen. I want you to take a shot whenever there is a subliminal image of Captain Howdy. You're getting, you're already getting You're going. already fucking hammered by now. Take a sip of beer on the religious symbolism <laughs> and take shots for that one. Take a shot whenever the bed shakes or an object flies across the room. Take a shot whenever bodily fluid is seen. There is so many different versions of bodily fluid mm, from... Split vo- pea soup. Yeah, split pea Hot split pea soup, which scared the shit out of him. <laughs> We're actually going to talk about that okay. in a few, just a couple moments. Um, take a shot whenever someone uses profanity. Now, Chris McNeil, her character uses profanity like it's going out of style. So you're going to be fucking drunk if you don't have any kind of tolerance. Sip on beer. Sip on, Sip beer. on beer for that one. Otherwise, it might kill you with alcohol. Uh, for those of you out there who take your drinking seriously, our friends over at Secret of the Booze have an exorcist-inspired cocktail that is sinfully delicious. Ooh. What you're going to need is one bunch of basil. I didn't realize that was a term, but you just take a, you know, a little sprig or you know a leaf of basil you're going to take a half a lemon a half a lime a one ounce of simple syrup and two ounces of gin you're going to mix everything together and you're going to fill it with ice now as far as that uh that basil you're going to take crush uh, it you're going to crush it in there just so it kind of leafy there's a word for it yeah i'm not i'm not uh you know we ain't chefs here (laughs) we watch movies (laughs) We watch other people make drinks. Yeah. Um, you're going to mix everything in a glass with ice, just like James Bond. We want you to shake it and uh, not be stirred. Shake it vigorously till it's all mixed up. Uh, there's also another layer that you're going to need one egg wipe, one ounce of simple syrup, one ounce of water, and one ounce of absinthe. I am not fond of absinthe. I don't like that, so... I might leave that out personally, but if you're I'm so rolling engaged, with it so far. So engaged. You're going to take... Um, you're going to take that, you're going to mix that together, and you're going to pour your frothy layer on top and make sure that's good and whisk so it's kind of a foamy consistency. And if it's done correctly, you're going to have a ghoulish two-toned uh, hue that will suit your purposes for exorcism or just a fun night of drinking. But as always, drink responsibly. And um, if you don't, you will puke just like the exorcist. <laughs> anyway, but if you, what were you saying? I interrupted. Uh, you pretty much hit it on the nail ahead. We yeah. just want, we want you to all be safe. And be now, safe. And if you're, especially if you're under quarantine right now, fucking drink. Drink. You got nothing else going on. Watch mo- movies. Watch the exorcist version you've never seen. And just have a good fucking time. And, and don't lose your fucking mind, people. All right, we got- Although I'm going to murder Brandon for his toilet paper after this is over. Oh, man. Fuck. Sorry. Love you. Uh, Plus, I have I have you recorded. Even though in Friday the Thirteenth, you said you're going to be burned with all your shit when you die. I have you on record saying that if you die, I get it. It's on the did, podcast. Did, did I say that? Yes. Well, I guess that'll be admissible in a court of law. <laughs> so we fuck go. it, have at it. Uh, let's do a little bit of general trivia before we get into our uh, our questions. 
First and foremost, due to the death threats that Linda Blair got from religious zealots who believed the film glorified Satan, Warner Brothers had a bodyguard protect her around the clock for six months after the film's release. That is crazy. We don't really like if if that shit is going on now we don't really hear about it um but i can't think of a movie that really riled people enough to to give i know i know it's probably routine twitter especially like fuck you i'm gonna kill you but yeah. it, it may not be taken seriously especially back then where it was a lot easier to like find people's addresses and stuff yeah it's john lennon how easy it was <laughs> Whoo! yeah that was a few years later but um yeah, maybe he should have taken that shit seriously. <sighs> Bummer. <laughs> you know, it was for Jodie Foster, so I kind of get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The the scene where Reagan vomits at Father Karras only required one take. Now, the, the vomit was supposed to hit uh, him in the chest, but you want to fill in the blanks? Hit him right in the face, and it was heated up because it wasn't moving right, so it, like, fucking startled the shit out of him. But I want to make a correction. The guy who shot Reagan was doing that for Jodie Foster, not the crazy ass who shot John Lennon. Oh. I just had to insert my own correction. But no, like that... It was like, a catcher in the rye that inspired... Yeah, uh, it was... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like, the whole split pea soup thing. Like, my mom... God rest her soul. She talked about that. She, how she could never eat it. And like, there's one day I think I had my first job as a bag boy. I'd never had it. I went and bought it. I heated it up. I'm eating it. And like, the taste isn't whatever, but I just kept looking at the bowl and thinking of that scene and looking at it. I'm like, okay, I'm throwing this shit away. Yeah. I, I don't like peas to begin with. And I, I can't disassociate split pea soup so it's from still gross so. puke and pea so either way you look at it being soup or puke it's still gross it's, to it's, you. it's gross either way <laughs> okay so i touched on this a little earlier but be, be prepared to have your mind blown and this is 100 percent fact this is not me making anything up when adjusted for inflation the exorcist is warner brothers highest grossing film of all time also adjusted for inflation, the film is the highest grossing R-rated film of all time. Suck it, Deadpool. Suck it, la- la- uh, Crucifixion, uh, last him, la- the Passion of the Christ. Yeah. Suck it, Mel Gibson. Last, but certainly not least, adjusted for inflation, The Exorcist is the ninth highest grossing film of all time. I mean, I get it. I uh, mean... I- Prior to doing this inform- this research, I had no idea. The I mean, I realized that it was a big hit, but I didn't realize I didn't realize it was as big of a hit as it actually is and continues to be. Um, and a lot of that profit is prior to its re-release. Now, every time it gets re-released, it's, it's stacks it's, on stacks, yeah, yo. Yeah, I mean, it's That's... it's it's like uh, Star Wars or uh, uh, fuck um uh, the fucking uh, Civil War movie. I'm blanking on the name of. Uh, Frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. Oh, Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Anytime it's re-released, huge box office numbers. Jack Nicholson was very nearly cast as Father Karras, among several other actors. Uh, we touched on Al Pacino a little earlier. Um, but he lost out the role because William Freakin thought, there's no way this guy could be taken seriously as a priest because he's too demonic. A little too free-spirited for his previous get roles. it. It's kind of the same argument that Stephen King had against him playing Jack Torrance in The Shining. It's Jack Nicholson. I mean, you see Jack Nicholson, and 73, his star might not have been quite as rising, but he's still in some, you know... Well, I'll tell you who star was very much prominent. 
The studio really wanted Marlon Brando to play the role of Father Marin, but Friedkin vetoed it because he believed that his star would break the paradigm of reality that they were striving for. So I think he had good... Uh, Taste is not the word. Uh, instincts. Instincts. Instincts about what and, serves the movie. Because Max von Sydow was a pretty big, well-known actor, but he gets lost in the makeup. And I, he's I don't, a character actor, not a superstar. He, yeah, he's not. I mean, Marlon Brando was an incredible actor. Yeah, I'm not to take anything away from but him. But I think it would have been a Marlon Brando movie yeah. rather than a you know, and the and, and a, a William freaking movie, movie yes. or Blatty movie, however you want to categorize it. Uh, the now infamous spider walk on the stairs was performed by contortionist uh, Linda Hager. And the shot would have been in the original cut of the film, but it was quote-unquote excised, pun intended, uh, because the cable was so visible. Uh, the shot was restored for the version you've never seen. is now synonymous with the film. Super fucking effective. Very effective. And it's so synonymous with the film that <coughs> there's most people don't even realize it's not in the original cut of the movie. I don't. I can't think of any other instance in a film that's had additional material added to it in re-releases that has had so much uh, appeal and impact on people. Like I can think of one, you know, because didn't Han, uh, didn't Greedo shoot first in oh, Star Wars? No, 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 no. no. Okay, let's put this. Let's put this to fucking just, bed. I meant in a positive way. That, that this is a negative right. thing. In the original cut of Star Wars from 1977, <laughs> Han is the only person who shoots. There is no who shot first. He's the only person that shoots. So and fuck you, George made. Lucas. I fuck just you. wanted to get a rise out of Brandon. But you're right. And especially not added material that people connect to the original release. No, I can't think of anything. Yeah. It, I was talking about that uh, actually not that long ago with somebody. And in my head, I was talking about it as a little implanted a memory of seeing it in second grade. I'm like, wait, no, that's a made-up memory because I didn't see it till it came back in the theaters for the version you've never seen. Yeah, it, it's it's crazy how your mind can, can fool you about things because it's so synonymous with the movie, you just assume... Because I, I had been... I, I almost got into an argument with somebody when it came out. Like, no, I remember seeing this in the, in the movie. And, like, and then I remember going to see it in the theater and be like... Okay, yeah, that's not in the movie. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. Your mind tricks you into things, yeah. but I think it's the best thing that's added to the film. Absolutely. Now, there are some things I don't like about the version you've never seen, and I prefer the theatrical version. All of the uh, additional subliminal Pazuzu faces, I think... In places, they look digitally composited. They don't look as natural. I agree. And there's a part where uh, they have Reagan's face morph into Eileen Dietz. That's a cool shot. I'm, uh, I can let that one slide, but it it does. It's still it's showing its age. Yeah, exactly. For something 2000, it was fine, but it, it in 2020 standards, like it sticks out like a sore thumb. However, pretty much everything else that they added to the movie because it was shot for the movie, it, it only pads out the story a little more and I, I think those are things that you could probably argue the minutia about but I, for my money they they add to serve the characters whether or not they were excised originally for positive reasons comes down to just the taste of like whether or not you think those things are stated better in an obvious way or you know left more into the imagination so I think either way both films both versions of the film have their merits and Absolutely. And, and fallbacks. 
Uh, a filmgoer who saw the movie in 1974 during its original release uh, fainted and broke his jaw on the seat of uh, you know, and in, in the theater of the seat in front of him. Uh, he he sued Warner Brothers, claiming that they used subliminal imagery, which caused him to lose consciousness. Um, the studio, out of court, settled for a dis- undisclosed sum. As they should have, because that's some great fucking free. Uh, that's some great advertisement for your it's, movie. It's absolutely great publicity because I think if this had actually gone to court, there's no fucking way this guy would have made any money. So them out. them paying him money was almost like, well, we hey, could let's keep this rolling. We yeah. could we could spend a hundred thousand dollars in promotion, which would get us which would not get us very far. Or we can spend you know because it makes him look guilty and it makes the movie look. Ah, uh, you know, more sinister. However, I mean, that's kind of a fine line. You got to think like, I mean, yeah, the guy did sustain actual injuries, but I, I'm just wondering. Is he like, have brittle bone disease? I mean, I've fallen straight <laughs> into those things before, and you know, he's not got a bruise. He broke his fucking jaw. I, he fell I, off a balcony. I, it, no, um, like, no, I, it's a great, it's a great advertising gimmick. They were smart to settle out of court. And if it was all real, I wish movie. I wish movies would do that nowadays. I want a movie to if they have some kind of subliminal subconscious shit to fuck me up. Have at it. I know some movies like like uh, the Conjure movies use different tones and stuff, and I, they're effective and it's great. Do more of that. You got something to make me shit my pants? Throw it at me. My my, my question is like, I mean, I realize he he actually sustained physical injuries, but I'm just wondering how many more people after finding out that this guy got got a Payday if we're like, oh, fuck, I'm going to try and, you know, sue. And I'm certain, uh, probably a lot, but I'd say they were shut down so wholeheartedly and ruthlessly because, again, they made the right decision. Let's get some PR from this, pay this guy something. But they didn't want to make a a big example of that, like let him be like the bad, that anybody else who might have done shit like that, their lawyers came on down on them like a ton of bricks. Well, I'm sure their lawyers... uh, could have made mincemeat out of just about Anything anybody. Anything like that. Um, Alfred Hitchcock reportedly turned down the chance to acquire the screen rights to the novel and turned down the opportunity to, to direct. Oh, this is going to be painful. I know so, ask here, here's the thing. like Hitchcock is one of the greatest directors of all time. That's There's no discussion there. Yeah. And he really was a great... At getting performances out of actors, um, I'm, I'm, I, I and I think the, everything that <coughs> freaking did, whether you agree with his techniques or not, to to balance the movie in reality, the movie would have been shot a lot differently with Hitchcock. It would have been, cin- it would have been cinem- more cinematic. So I don't, I don't even know that it would have been bad, but I don't think it would, it would not be have impactful. Been as good, okay. Alfred Hitchcock is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. I love it. North by Northwest is probably easily top five favorite movies of all time. Uh, it pains me to say that, no, he could not have made as good a film as William Freakin' as a scary, effective movie. He could have made a great suspenseful thing. He would have had great performances. It would have been shot different. It wouldn't have... Well, there definitely would not have been any uh, crucifix. Oh, no, no. I'm going to argue that point because later on, like, Frenzy and his movies, they got a lot more 
he exploitative. A lot of the movies where we remember Hitchcock from and oh, he's classy were under restrictions. In the 70s, he did movies with nudity and right. violence. Uh, he might not have been as blatant with it because the scene's in the book. He would have had it. He would have been more subtle about it, definitely. It would have been there. He was still a, a schlockmeister I, at heart. I, I agree with you. I just don't know that it would It would not have been... I don't think it would have been it exploitative no, in the it, way he would have shot and it. It wouldn't have been as raw and like, God damn it, this is happening. You know... As the movie is, no, it would have been an inferior film, and it hurts me. It hurts me to say that, but it's true. It would not have been as good. Um, you kind of were talking about like being ex- him being somewhat exploitative. Yeah. Uh, he he had a great way of. I think it was called the Hayes Code. Yes, uh, where you couldn't have characters kissing on screen for like long periods of time. So he had this genius method where he would have them kiss for like two or three seconds. They would break apart and they would give some more dialogue and then they would kiss. And it would basically, you would get more kissing than you but would in a normally. normal movie. Yeah. So, Oh, it, he it, was great. I mean, he was an asshole and a monster. I won't say it like, Fucking was Tippy Hedron and the birds. Oh yeah, you would be dealing with real birds because she was terrified with birds. And, and then she had to deal with real and birds. And it was all <laughs> fucked up. And, like, even there's one movie, I can't remember the name of it. His daughter's in it, and she had a fear of heights, and they were on a uh, Ferris wheel. And he left her at the top, stopped it, killed all the lights, and left her up there for, like, lunch. I mean, he's a monster, but he's a great filmmaker. But in this one instance, you needed the the documentarian feel of realness in this movie well, to make it as effective as just, it was. Just because you're a great filmmaker doesn't necessarily... You're good for everything. Yeah, I mean, like... Um, fuck. Uh, Steven Spielberg could not have made Debbie Does Dallas as good as it originally came out. I mean, he just it would have been shot better. It would have been shot better, but like... A lot more heartwarming. Yeah. Instead of cockwarming. <laughs> um, Christian Evangelicist... Uh, I can't... How do you say that? Evangelica. Evangelical... Evangelical Christians. Okay. Uh, Billy Graham. Uh, the... The inv- Evangelical... I can't say it. Fuck. Evangelist. The, the evangelist, yes. The evangelist Billy Graham, not the wrestler. Um, superstar Billy Graham. Two tons of power, baby. Um, claimed an actual demon was living in the celluloid reels of the film. Because he's fucking retarded. And I'm sorry. But it sounds great. And this shit like this I heard of. Like when I saw this movie. This was shit that was in my head as a it, child. Is that not the greatest... Like endorsement you could give a movie. Tell me right now, as a thirty-nine-year-old man, show me scientific proof there's a demon in a movie. I'm fucking watching it. <laughs> Speaking of demons, in 1974, Turkey did a rip-off film called Satan. S S E Y T A N. It is almost a shot-for-shot remake, only with on a way smaller I've seen budget. Some Turkish mockbusters that are great. I'd be interested in seeing that one. Um, I've seen Turkish Star Wars. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This movie, um, I watched it uh, not long ago. Actually, it's probably maybe maybe about a year ago. Um, It's it's really funny unintentionally. Where you know, some people that don't know any better say that some of the things in The Exorcist is funny. Um, And I know they're viewing it through modern modern eyes and you know and not the context of the film because they're not actually watching the movie they're just seeing shit happen in front of their eyes this is what i imagine that they're seeing because yeah, there's, there's less good. context 
Oh man. Okay, so let's let's hit our uh, fan questions. We've got some fun ones and uh, a couple of ones that are they're actually serious. This comes from Joshua Bowling from my uh, Smoky Mountain Ghostbusters group. Fat Tony, does the power of Christ compel you? Absolutely not. Hell, Satan. <laughs> Uh, it, sure. Why not? It, it compels me to uh, to do this podcast every day. Um, this comes from Cinematic Addicts. Uh, does your mother sucks cocks in hell? I'm not gonna have. Oh. I'm not gonna have you answer that because that is in very poor taste. But... That was a great question though. That made me smile. <laughs> my sense of humor gets really dark. But no, she doesn't. Uh, my mother is not in hell uh, unless you consider Morristown, Tennessee, hell, which Close may, which well should. Uh, and then, and if my that's mother, the case, I hope so. You my, know, you're no. Dad. My mother is a saint. She, uh, I was born out of uh, uh, virgin birth. Virgin birth. Uh, I cannot uh, view my life <laughs> in any other context. Uh, I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but he he uh, he's very active in our Facebook group. So I want to give a shout out to him, uh, Jerry Adapaka. A P O D A C A. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. You rule, dude. Uh, if you if you're uh, if you want to send me a voice message through uh, Messenger, let me know how to pronounce it. If you give us some uh, question next time, I'll have you on deck. Um, will you be using real human vomit? I would never skimp. Uh, no pea soups uh, around here. This no, is all, fuck pea soup. All 100% real vomit uh, in the black lodge. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, this is an actual question coming from Jason Davis. How did the 19-year-old Mike Oakenfield's Tubular Bells end up as the iconic theme song for The Exorcist, and what about that song made it perfect to fit the movie? That's a good question. So, Freakin had originally commissioned uh, Lalo Schifrin, I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, who did the Mission Impossible theme, to do the score, and he produced some music, and freaking just didn't like it. Um, freaking like come through tons of music, and he, I guess, just stumbled across it. So it's one of the happy accidents. Happy accidents. Um, oddly enough, the song is barely in the movie. It's once or twice. Yeah, like right there when Karis first, uh, not Father Marin. Marin. First rolls, I mean, but it's there's still a shot so where, iconic. There's a and shot. the trailer, though, isn't it? Oh, okay. Heavily in the trailer. The trailer is actually something we should probably talk about, uh, at least briefly. Um, it was banned pretty quickly after it debuted because it's just like strobing effects of like the Bazuzu face. seizure. And, you know, that infamous music. And evidently it gave people seizures, so... Um, yeah, it worked. I mean, but they remember the exorcists after that. Yeah, maybe that's after that. Maybe yeah. that. Maybe that's how that guy got his jaw broken. The the exorcist is relatively musicless, uh, and I think that actually that's adds a, a lot to it. Every fucking movie you see now that's like trying to create suspense, it's all through music. And I don't want to discount like Carpenter and uh, Howard do Shore great things with music. and um, you know uh, a fucking blank on his name. Uh, uh, who Mancini. Fucking Friday the 13th guy. Manfredini. Manfredini. Your my Man- bad. Mancini's uh, that Mancini, would be, uh, yeah. the, the, the director or the, or the writer of Child's I'm Black sad. Black. Leave me alone. Quit bullying me. <laughs> I'm trying to think of... Uh, 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 John Williams? Elmer Bernstein, John Williams. They they can add something uh, to a tone of a movie, but I think that one of the strengths of 70s movies is they knew when and when not to have music. Yeah. And... The music can really overpower a scene. Sometimes you need it to breathe. Just let that the atmosphere of the moment really come through. And silence 
scares me. Oh yeah, I'm more scared by silence than I am by by music. Because our brains, especially us at our age, we're, our brains are uh, like conditioned to pick up on music cues. Like something's going to happen, even if it kicks off. If it's mostly musical, we don't. It's like we don't have like one of our senses to get us through a room. We're kind of more free floating, and anything could happen. Yeah, you got a good point there. And uh, with that, we're going to have uh, two questions from Titty Flip and Travis. So these are these are obviously going to be serious questions. Super serious. Uh, the first one is: uh, Would the Lord <laughs> have been more offended if Reagan used holy water as lube when stabbing herself with the crucifix? Um, no, because it would have blessed her vaginal area, <laughs> and it would have been less of a sin against the Lord. But it just, she was probably also on her period, which made her unclean. Let's just assume that because he wants the most evil out of this and shot. So a lot of the blood might have been period blood, which if you read the Bible, women were supposed to go away from society, wash their clothes, you know. So I think the Lord would have been more approving as holy with holy water lube. All right. You heard it, women. Uh, when you get your period, you got to leave. Out unclean. <laughs> All right. If Chris would have just licked Reagan, would the demon have been satisfied? Absolutely <laughs> not. No. It takes more than just a lick to satisfy a demon. How many, how many, like, how many licks does it take to get to the... 666. <laughs> oh my God, you just answered. That's the meaning of life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fuck 42, it's 666. Actually, oh, my, oh my God. Oh my God. With that, I, I think we may all need to go to church ASAP no, and start never. repenting for some of the shit we've said tonight. Hell, Odin. <laughs> all right. I think that's going to do it uh, till next month. I want all of you out there to follow the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast on social media at Rants Black Lodge. Subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and don't you forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com and for the love of Cthulhu, buy a t-shirt from our web store at RantArmy.com. For Fat Tony, I'm Brandon A. Lane. We'll see you next month. Until next month, Rant Army, keep marching.